Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me today, as always, is the man who once stole a military helicopter from a San Diego naval base, Mr. Ryan Siebold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? Not bad, not bad. Man, dude, that was a... That was some sort of jaunt, dude. That was all across the news and everything, man. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was just sitting there. Uh, keys were in it. And <laughs> <laughs> well, helicopters have keys. Do they have keys? I don't know. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> just uh, what were you even doing at a military base, dude? Oh, um, were, you, oh you, were you part of that whole like storm area 51 or 52 or what the hell is no, it? No, no. So <laughs> in the off season, I did uh, form an A team and uh, we were looking for some military surplus equipment uh, to uh, scavenging, if you will. Right. I, I mean, don't we all love it when a plan comes together? I know. I do. <laughs> so I formed an A team. If you would like to join, uh, you're more than welcome. Uh, you can no, fake, no, no, no. That, that's that, that's. Everyone that ship has sailed, right? actually, because I actually found out that. Uh, so I did a little bit of research. Uh, I found two members from your team that you put together actually managed to use government surveillance tracking technology to hunt them down oh, and shit. bring them on the show right now. God so damn it. So if you will, please welcome to the show, Mr. Craig Rasmussen and Seamus Smith. <laughs> Thank you very much. I mean, I appreciate you totally wrecking my witness protection program plan, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> oh, right. Damn it. I wasn't supposed to say that. Uh, Mr. John Smith and John Smith Jr. <laughs> can, I be, can I be John Johnson? John Johnson. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, is that, was that the, oh, no, I was thinking of Jeremiah Johnson, the uh, infamous uh, Robert Redford gift that we all yeah, know. Yeah, Correct. Oh, yeah. Correct. You know what? He can still give us a knowing glance that lasts far too long. It's okay. <laughs> it's Everyone a wants that glance, beard man. he has in that movie. Go ahead, Seamus. Uh, Are you all feeling the glare through the airwaves? That's how intense it is. Everyone right now is like, oh, shit, I was shaking to my core. And I don't even know why. Not just That's intense. Smith vibes coming at Not you. just intense, but meaningful. <laughs> Deeply meaningful at that. Yeah. You, you sons of bitches, why'd you turn your back on my A team? I thought we were we had a thing going on. We were helping people for money. Uh, oh shit! You did you guys like abandon him? Pri the private sector pays more. Uh, <laughs> I, son of yeah, a bitch. I can't. I got to work on uh, uh, my package. That. Yeah. Well, you know, look, we paid off our cars. We paid off our houses. I know, but uh, I had a sweet black van. Uh, I don't know what what else you need. <laughs> well, do, you, do you provide the same sort of like insurance that Blackwater does? Because that was kind of the deciding factor for me to, you know. Oh, shit. So what <laughs> I'm hearing is that these guys are in demand and you lowballed them, dude. And yeah. that you kind of, you know, had it come into a degree. I have a, a very specific set of skills and I expect to be paid for them. <laughs> Point taken. Also, uh, real quick, uh, to, let, to, to let our listeners know, so uh, these two dudes are awesome. They are actually from a uh, program that we really enjoy called the repeat viewing podcast 
Uh, we were on their program recently. Well, it was a few months ago at this point um, to do Army of the Dead. That was super fun. The film that we are going to do today is going to be a decidedly different vibe uh, than that one. You mean and, in the uh, sense that it's happy-go-lucky, crowd-pleasing, family-friendly <laughs> comedy, right? One hundred percent. Yeah. So it's sort of like I, you know, I like, really wanted to watch something lighthearted this weekend. So I appreciate. Well, yeah. This no. Much. Then we. You got a perfect film, man. Yeah. I mean, I think this Nailed is right it. there in that sort of mid '90s romantic comedy vibe, right? Just sort of everything's easy, breezy, beautiful. You know. It didn't need any Hugh Grant in it, but it felt like it had all of the Hugh Grant. That's what I felt like. <laughs> something about fireflies. Yeah. Ryan, why don't you go ahead and tell us what we're watching and discussing today? This is Grave of the Fireflies from 1988, described on Amazon uh, as on the final days of World War II, 14-year-old Seta and his four-year-old sister Setsuko are orphaned after their mother is killed during an air raid by American forces in Kobe, Japan. Uh, after having a fallout with their aunt, they move into an abandoned bomb shelter with no surviving relatives and their emergency funds and rations depleted. Seta and Setsuko must struggle to survive their hardships as well as those of their country, which is on the losing end of the war. Spoiler alert, they lost. I, I don't know how much... Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah, Damn it, we're right. at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> Jesus. So, right at uh, the top. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my pick. Uh, one of the things I chose, I had uh, wanted to see this for a long time. This is on a lot of uh, 100 films you need to see before you die. Um, specifically if you're dying in war, I guess. Uh, <laughs> or 100 I films feel... you need to watch that may, will make you want to die when you get done with them. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I feel terrible. Like, I feel like I asked you all to a, a funeral to come hang out for some beers. Like, hey, guys, come join us, you know, for this sadness. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, I, uh, to go I can barely it. wake up from... I can barely wake up from slitting my wrists last night at the end of this movie, but it's okay. I mean, <laughs> I'm here. Let's talk. Well, about Well, and the thing is, so, I mean, but also like you guys have done traditionally like a little bit more serious analysis too, right? Like you guys aren't just like a hundred percent jokes all the time. No, right? we know. I mean, in fact, I apologize for being so jokey. It's just that this uh, particular movie probably is going to require some levity at. Yeah. At <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, no, we, we typically try to be serious about the actual discussion of the film. It's just that, you know, as you do a podcast over time, you realize that it has to be fun, you know, every time out for you and especially for the listener. So more and more, I think we are maybe leaning not necessarily only in the direction of humor, but just finding as many ways as possible to make the show fun. Yeah, definitely. And that's and that's something that Ryan and I definitely inhabited from the onset, which is that, like, we love film discussion. But every time you listen to someone's program, it's this like heavy NPR vibes. Mm -hmm. Right. And everyone's like. Welcome to Coffee Talk. Let's discuss blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, why, why do we love to talk like that? Like, we're just like, to like, dude, that was a dope movie. Blah, blah, blah. This and that, right? Like, that's how we discuss movies. Mm -hmm. So why can't we just do that on a, on a program? And uh, yeah, and I think it's awesome, you know? And, and uh, like, I don't know if you guys are uh, familiar with, like, Mustachioed Podcastio, but he very much has a similar vibe. You guys should check him out. He's dope. Um, we're going to bring him on the show next month, I believe it looks like. So... Um, yeah, so there's, you know, kind of a lot of us like taking this approach and, and you know, we just, uh, know, it's a lot of fun for me and hopefully it's fun for the listeners. Yeah, they're going to let you know. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this, uh, generally speaking, we would have a trailer for you guys right now for the listeners and... Uh, because we're not going to assume that most of you speak Japanese, and we certainly do not. Uh, we're not going to be playing the trailer because there was no English language trailers that we could find, nor were there any English language clips that we could find. So once again, this is going to be a uh, clip and trailer free episode. Normally, you'd be stuck with just Jason and Ryan, but thankfully, we got these two dudes helping us out, Craig and Seamus, so uh, be able to carry the load a little bit. You're not just stuck with the two of us. Well, luckily, the our time. English language reenactments of certain scenes are going to really 
payoff, you know. Speaking of which, let's uh, chime in real quick. Did you guys all watch the traditional Japanese version or the English dubbed? Subtitled Japanese version. Yeah, you did? Subtitled, okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, subtitled here. So I thought I, I was we... signing up for that on Vudu, and uh, I got the English dubbed, and I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. So it is. Yeah, yeah that's they, cool. They only have that version on Vudu from what I could tell. So. Got it. Got it. Where'd you guys watch it? YouTube? YouTube for yep. free. Yep. So I hope your Got $4 it. went to bitch. some good cause. <laughs> <laughs> I would not. Re- I mean, ideally, I would not recommend uh, watching on YouTube just because of, like, you know, the constant, like, chapter change. You'll see, like, yeah. the, the dude's little, like, arrow <laughs> pop up. And it's just like, okay, you know. This is Especially kinda- with a film like this that really kind of, you know, like, is trying to keep you in the moment and strike these emotional vibes. And then, like, yeah, just seeing the little the little hand from the dude trying to skip chapters or whatever. Really? I but it wasn't that the- egregious. But every, like, 15 minutes. <laughs> It's maybe so. I kind of like the little. <laughs> if mini, I had to do it again, I wouldn't. I like the little mini intermissions. It kind of helped my emotional state. <laughs> <laughs> Take a break from the heaviness. So time to grab uh, some Kleenex. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah, so let's go ahead and let's start off with uh, the opening shot as we've been doing recently. So at the beginning, for, at the beginning, right? <laughs> so our opening shot of Grave of the Fireflies. So there's a young man and he's staring almost directly into camera. His eyes are obscured in shadow by the brim of his hat. While his body's bathed in an orange light, contrasted by dark, unseeable background around him. Now, as he looks upon his surroundings with an indifferent, unknowable expression, narration kicks in. It states that the day is September 21st, 1945, the day that he died. And that's going to set up what is a very sort of somber film that we're going to see over the course of these, uh, well, the 90 minutes of the film. Um, from there, we immediately see another young man. He's he's sitting up against a wall, and he appears to be starving. He's not in good shape. As a matter of fact, there's a number of other young men who are equally ravaged, bodies all around. The cops that are patrolling, they sort of inspect them, basically announce that all of them appear to be dead, at which point a cop grabs this empty can of candy that was in uh, one of the dead bodies, throws it into a field, And the fireflies all sort of, you know, gather light up around it. And then we see that same orange bathed figure, the young man, show up with a young girl as well. And the two of them pick up the can. It sort of renews itself, becomes new. Uh, The two of them walk off and then we get the credit sequence. So, again, you know, this is for for our program where we've done like what five in a row, like horror sci fi genre films. Uh, this is this is very much going to be a hard right into some really emotional territory. So if you're listening and it sounds like, oh, wow, that's really heavy. Uh, good. It should. Your emotional compass is 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 well tuned. Um so, Ryan, uh, you know, especially because we've had so many, you know, we've looked at all these, uh, like I said, genre films, The Void and all of this. Um, what did you think about watching this film, like with the tone and how did you respond? Obviously, oh. was it like too much for you? Did you think it was over the top? Was it a nice balance? Was it effective? What was your sort of high level reaction to the emotional nature and heaviness so, of the film? A couple things. Uh, I'll start it off with a uh, cinematic confession. <laughs> um, which we haven't done yet this season. So this will be our first season uh, two we? cinematic confession. This is wow, my six first episodes in until we get our first cinematic confession. Hey, uh, oh, so th- hey, Ryan, can you say that again? Just real sl- we'll slow down a little bit more. Cinematic confession into uh, both mics. I'm talking yeah. into two mics. It's weird. I, I'm really <laughs> By the way, if at any point, now. Seamus and Craig, if at any point during the episode, you have something you want to reveal, like some sort of like secret shame okay. where yeah. you want to let the listeners know and just put it out and own it into the world, <laughs> you just preface it by saying 
cinematic confession. It's a yeah, in a breathy a voice, and then yeah. you say it. So that's out so there for me. You. My cinematic confession it. is that uh, this is my first Studio Ghibli film. Uh, I have never, yeah, I've never seen uh, I'm sorry. Studio Ghibli. I have to, you guys have to go. I, this is just uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a good crowd to do a podcast. No, that's the appropriate with, response. But, uh, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Huh? That's that's kind of interesting, Ryan, because I actually might have my own cinematic confession. Oh, here it Yeah, comes. this is my first two. This is yeah! my first Ghibli film, 100%. fuck out of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know it's weird, right? <laughs> Ryan's camera just collapsed from yeah. shame. <laughs> <laughs> the, even the camera was like, oh, fuck this, I'm out of here. You guys call yourself cinephiles? look at this nah, guy bro. anymore. Nah, let's fight. <laughs> oh, man, I have too many t- yeah. pieces of technology in front of me. I just <laughs> well, and I think that I think that from what I understand, too, most of them are a little lighter than this one, yeah? Is oh, yeah, a lot. So, yeah. <laughs> A lot. I'm going to say a lot. I'm just going to put this on Front Street a lot fucking lighter than this one. Okay. <laughs> I, I haven't, I mean, I, I, I've i seen some Studio Ghibli over the years. I mean, I'm not, you know, versed as deeply as a lot of uh, people are, but this was definitely the first time I finally got around to watching this movie, which is, a, you know, a title that, you know, I knew of for a long time because, I mean, it was so acclaimed in 88. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, decades it took to actually watch this movie. Yeah, I mean, this has been on my list for a while, too. And that's what I love about this podcast and others like it yep. is that it gives me an excuse to dive into these things that are just I haven't gotten around to for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those movies like, again, I think we talked about this with Under the Skin as well. This is one you have to watch by yourself. It's not like, hey, let's pop some popcorn and round up the kids <laughs> and come sit around and watch uh, kids die, you know, and, and people really, I invited all <laughs> and the horrors of war for this one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, show them what happens. This is, how, <laughs> this is what happens, kids, when you don't listen to uh, to me. So, yeah, um, this is my first studio. Is it Ghibli or Ghibli? Is it? I believe it's Ghibli, but who the hell knows, man? It's, yeah. you know, first of all, it's not even it doesn't even seem like it's a Japanese word, so it's very hard to have yeah. a rubric. Well, no, I think it's like I think it's like Ghibli, right? The Ghibli? eyes have that e pronunciation. Oh, okay. Except right, like G H, but G H. That's why it's, it makes it. Curious. You know what? It's, it totally, it's gonna be something totally off. It's gonna be like it makes an S sound in the native language. I love that like ten minutes of this something. episode are gonna be devoted to the pronunciation of the name of the studio. It's like Doug, Jif Jif, you would be surprised how much of this program we dedicate to mispronouncing foreign films and, and we haven't even and, and names. we haven't even gotten to Maya Mayazaki yet. Uh, is that yeah. how you say it? So. Yeah. <laughs> Miyazaki, right? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's Miyazaki. 100%. Final answer, lock it down. Miyazaki. Meyer, Meyer's his first name, I think. <laughs> Speaking of which, this was directed by Esau Takahara, yeah. uh, so, who is the, the uh, co-founder of... Mm-hmm. Um, nice. GB Ryan, we actually... Uh, I mean, I think we strayed for three minutes and you still haven't actually answered the question of how the film's tone answer worked for you. Oh, it's good. <laughs> That's the hard-hitting analysis you come to on yep. this program. Cool. Episode over, I guess. Right, guys, yeah. I thought I had. Good. All right, hey, guys, thanks for good. joining. See us. you later. Appreciate thanks so much it. for joining us on Esoterica Cinema. We all did uh, a no, great job. Oh, thank God, I can still make it to church. Hats on the back. Beers for everyone. Beers for everyone. <laughs> yeah. No, I was. Ca- I was honestly, I was captivated by this film. I'm glad we watched it. Uh, I was just a little embarrassed that we invited you guys uh, on board for this one and not something a little more fun. But it sounds like you were down for the ride, and this is kind of in your wheelhouse anyway. So. Um, yeah. Well, no, I had actually, I had actually proposed it to them and they were saying that they had like wanted to be do more Japanese animation and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, dude, like I so said, it's the, not, the, not the, everybody, not everybody has to be a jokey asshole to come on the program, dude. <laughs> the <laughs> score is fantastic. Um, the matte paintings in the background are stellar. Um, I guess they did some revolutionary stuff with the brown outlining uh, mm-hmm. versus normal standard black outlining, which uh, reduced some of the contrast and um, just the, the, 
Uh, we're going to get into all this, but you asked yeah. uh, the patience and the timing of the film, uh, how it lets you sit in these moments is just wonderful. And um, yeah, it was powerful. And I think I texted you uh, several times throughout uh, about the emotional impacts and to prepare yourself because uh, for the Saturday, yeah. Uh, the saddening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the real truth of is it, it, the real truth of not watching this movie until this point in one's life is because you really need to you need all that time to emotionally brace yourself for this movie. <laughs> right, so, right. It ain't, it ain't no ponyo. No, it's definitely much. not a. Yeah. It's not a yeah. ponyo. You know, it makes Princess Mononoke look like a fucking Adam Sandler comedy. It's just well, <laughs> I think my my neighbor Totoro really did get fat from eating a bunch of kids. I, if I'm not mistaken, that big cat thing. So, uh, oh yeah, that's what it was. By the way, on that note, I was gonna bring this up later, but did you guys happen to to read at all about how when this film first came out, um, they actually packaged it as mm. a two piece. With my neighbor Totoro. But what oh, found, shit, no. <laughs> what I found most interesting about that was that it wasn't even in terms of presentation. It was in order to green light the budget for the yeah. movies. They had to basically say, look, we got this really kid-friendly one, and we got this heavy, 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 heavy fucked-up drama. So <laughs> we know you don't want to finance the drama, but what about this kiddie movie? You know, So they basically <laughs> positioned them to be double features from the very outset, and then they played them as double features, which... One has to wonder about that, and then and then Jason, do you want to do you want to give the actual coup de grace of how the double? Oh no, feature please, by all means. You I got mean, this so basically, they well. they put this after my neighbor my neighbor Totoro every time on a double feature, and half the audience would walk out every time because they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're good, we're in a great mood. Let's just go get yeah. some ice cream with the kids, you know. So yeah, I, I think that it's a very interesting genesis, I think, for this particular project. Because like, I mean, even just watching it isolated from knowing that information i was kind of like man how did this movie get made yeah you know right definitely well so, yeah, um, something we haven't even mentioned yet is this is loosely based on a true story mm-hmm. um yeah and, uh, and as a means of um the uh seta characters uh trying to deal deal with grief uh, mm-hmm. leaving his younger sister to die of malnutrition so yeah, uh, yeah. The, d- the deeper you dive into this film just the darker it gets and the more <laughs> shit layers of an onion uh, you have to deal with it's like oh my gosh um, definitely so, definitely uh, yeah. after this i do have some digital therapy sessions scheduled i'm going to go ahead and log on uh so <laughs> if i have to sign up. afternoon on uh on uh, what's it called um better help or something yeah yeah right <laughs> mental health health uh, awareness month uh, is coming around the corner and uh i'm going to kick it off with some grave of the fireflies too. perfect movie to start that right <laughs> off oh my god this movie seems like you're, you know, you got your head in the chopping block waiting for the guillotine to drop. Just like the whole time, I, I was just like, uh, something bad's going to happen to that little girl. You yeah, know, like, and absolutely. it's just like waiting it out was super painful, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Oh, Seamus, I want to get your opinion on something here, actually. So um, it's actually like, so the beginning of the film, we it actually starts off, like I said, with this sort of, uh, you know, young man who's bathed in orange. I believe it's safe to say that by the end of it that that it's it's obviously it's the main character Saita and his daughter Setsuko, right? So, sister. No. Uh, or, sister. yeah, sister Setsuko. Excuse me. Um, what did you think about just like using that as a device to start the film off, and then the way that it sort of come back comes back in the end? Because I thought it was really interesting to just introduce the main character sort of like as this ghostly figure, then sort of show his real body. And you're not exactly sure what's going on there. It sort of takes you a little bit. What did you think that is that as a narrative device? I mean, I, I liked it. I mean, it, well, it does set it does set the table for the, the um, I guess, the the tone you should brace yourself for. Any movie that opens with like, this is the day that I died. And then it's just like, OK, this is not this is not going to be, you know, uh, a fun little ride. And I think it, and I, I did really like the nonlinear uh, 
nature of the, the structure of the movie in general. Um, I thought it was pretty well done. Um, but yeah, I mean, any movie that opens with like the, the narrator being like, okay, I'm going to tell you how it ends, which is my death. Uh, yeah. But let, let me, before I get to my death, let me, let me tell you about some other fucked up shit that, you know, my sister and I had to persevere through for uh, you know, the end of the, of the second world war. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to sort of, you know, go back and I didn't, I didn't, it took me a little, little bit, a little minute to understand that like that was actually like the main character speaking, like, you know, it wasn't exactly sure until, well, um, I mean, he you looks, know, the, the obvious physical yeah. resemblance kind of helps bring like that along. At the very beginning of the movie yeah. because he's completely malnourished and about to die, which is really subtle in animation. You don't get the same thing. It's not into the wilderness when you watch Emil Hirsch just waste away on camera. Like it, it's harder to tell that the little girl is malnourished as the movie goes on until they really hit it home, you know. But I think yeah. that that's a nice subtle thing that exists in the animation of this movie is that it is there, you know. Like her fat, she has a big fat kind of round face at the beginning of the story, and it slowly, slowly, slowly thins out. And I didn't even realize realize it until like the third beginning of the third act or so how much they were changing the appearances of the characters, which you don't see that often in animation because I think it's safer to be able to recognize the characters, you know. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So when the movie sort of kicks off in earnest after that initial credit sequence, um, we are introduced to our main characters, Saita and Sasuko, and uh, it jumps up, it jumps back probably one, possibly two months. Um, and, you know, pretty, pretty immediately we uh, experience an air raid. And this is going to be kind of a recurring theme. That was something that I thought was handled really well in terms of just sort of making you feel the anxiety um, of never really knowing when those are going to hit. So, you know, the air raid goes off, the family needs to leave for the bomb shelter, um, and, you know, the little girl, Satsuko, she's upset, she doesn't want to go. Obviously, you know, the brother's like, hey, don't worry about this. She, he straps her to her back, uh, they leave, we see the bombs being dropped, the entire town sort of fleeing away, um, and then we get that really effective shot where, you know, it's a... Uh, uh, all of the sort of cities on fire, we get the sort of wide shot of it blazing with all the people sort of cowering in that like lower third horizon. And then in the, in that second, that middle horizon, we get the, the soldier, you know, and he walks by and he's chanting like hail to the emperor as like the people cower and the buildings ablaze, you know, and there's some obviously very powerful commentary behind that um, with the sort of, uh, you know, nature of war and exactly, you know, costs, whether they're hidden or right there on the surface. Uh, Craig, this is something I actually wanted to ask you because um, a lot of people, and, and I would sort of put myself in this camp, uh, would describe this film as like an anti-war film, you know, mm -hmm. but the creators actually sort of got on record saying it wasn't necessarily his intent, though certainly his belief structure kind of backs that up. Um, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think it is or it isn't? Do you, and, and, you know, why do you think the creator uh, maintains that it isn't? I found that that quote from him very interesting because I, I would say that this seems like an anti-war film, or at least it's a film that really tries to show what the true cost, like the local cost of war actually is, you know, and having that soldier, you say, long live the emperor while he's about to, you know, either con commit Harakiri seppuku or, you know, just die by fire or whatever, you know, he's he's taking his that death with honor and taking it as kind of a a nod to the greatness of the empire of Japan or whatever. And like that as a very, you know, especially I'd say in our strangely nationalistic times has a ring of uh, terror to it. You know, it's got, it's got yeah. something that's very complicated within it. And I think that this movie is a lot about those complications, but from a very kind of local personal perspective, you know? So I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard to say that it is not anti-war. I don't know if I can completely agree with it because 
it, it pretty much is just showing that the cost of war is too high on its on the people of the world or on the people of each individual country. But I don't know. At the same time, I actually kind of thought maybe, and it's had some criticism for this that it 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 sort of it sort of makes Japan not look like necessarily the aggressor that they were mm-hmm. because it doesn't talk at all about what Japan was up to. You know, it just specifically talks about, you know, what's happening at home. But I think that it's tough because World War II is such a vicious thing and and you, it's dangerous to whitewash any of those details. But a lot of the details, especially about Japan and China, get absolutely whitewashed. Yeah, you know? so definitely. I and I time think- with it. It was somewhat nationalistic in that sense, maybe. So go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. and I, But I think that's also pretty common, um, especially, you know, when you, you sort of talk about pre-internet times you know that's kind of one of the things that i think gets lost a lot of times is the the flow of information that we have today in 21 is so far beyond what we had like pre-internet you know especially in the 80s and the 90s even Mm -hmm. um and there's so much that we've learned in the last 20 years you know through just again this sort of global information network that's out there now and you know we're we're realizing that a lot of our histories are a lot more complicated and ugly than we ever might have um, thought, but I think at the same time, you know, you as an individual can really only speak to your experience. And perhaps, right. perhaps when he says it's 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 not an anti-war film, what he means to say is that it's not a commentary on war at all. Like it's definitely right. not pro-war, right? Like it's not one of those things. Like by by saying it's not anti-war, I'm not saying it's pro-war. But what I'm saying, this being the creator. Um, could be that, uh, you know, it's a story ab- about these two people. It's a story about um, these specific characters in the context of a larger war. And right. it's not about blame and it's not about who's the aggressor. Right. It's about right. them right. being right. victims yeah. caught in this scenario that's much larger than themselves. Yeah, True. I think yeah. that, uh, okay. you know, it's not about good guys and bad guys and, you know, heroes and villains. Um, and, and I love war movies that do this. Paths of Glory kind of did this. Uh, yeah, in, in I love that. It's actually that movie and Empire of the Sun kept coming up in my mind a lot while I was right, watching this. Right, right. Nice. It's about the people caught in between. You no, know, no, pa- it's about... Paths of Glory, Hope and Glory. Oh, okay. Oh, I was thinking Paths of... We talked about Kubrick. Yeah, we did Paths of Glory Oh, no, sorry. Season, yeah, so. I, I thought you were talking about the same movie I was. There's a John Borman, Borman. movie. Yeah, no, Hope and Glory. Hope and Glory, Paths which is about... Kubrick. Yeah, John yeah. Borman yeah. of Zardoz fame? Is that John Borman? That's the one, yeah. Don't you fucking talk shit about Zardoz. Son of a bitch. Oh, no, dude. I, we we, we have problem. issues with Zardoz. Hey, I got man. an hour and a half of it. I'm locked and loaded, ready to go. It's not horrible, but man, I I, I, I'm not even going to say that's a good movie. Right yeah. now. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> no. But anyways, we digress. Yeah, we do digress. I, I do. Uh, I, oh, sorry. Well, I just want to say that the Hope and Glory, if, if a listener hasn't seen it, is an excellent film that's very similar in the sense that it's about innocence lost during wartime. And and the, the attempt of those characters to try and retain as much innocence and live their childlike experience as much as possible within this war-torn city. So I kept thinking yeah. about that movie a lot. And sorry to step on paths of glory. Um <laughs> No, I know no. that, that has it a sounds similar... like yours is a better comparison. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, I mean, it, it, that and Empire of the Sun were really on my mind as yeah. I was watching this. I have I seen think, Empire of the Sun. I have I not think seen Hope and Glory. The, the the one thing, and this goes back to what we're saying about whether or not this is a, a war film, uh, a, a anti-war or pro-war film, is that I think it's much more about the uncontrollable circumstances that one faces within a wartime. You know, so right, it, yeah, it isn't about good guys and bad guys at all. It's just about the circumstances, and that's why. Seta goes to the extent that he goes to to try and keep his sister alive. 
Well, right. I'd even uh, zoom out a little bit further and say that it's just getting caught in the crossfire of of powerful men uh, For sure. in the sense of, you know, poverty, homelessness. I mean, you could look at uh, and transpose this, these themes on top of a lot of social things we deal with that have nothing to do with you or me or anything. It's just we're caught in the crossfire of these uh, powerful, you know, entities that are going at it. It's happening today. You know, I thought a lot of even, uh, you know, war-torn countries like Syria or Yemen, you know, mm -hmm. places that are just, uh, in, unfortunately, in the, you know, these, these civilians are in the wrong place at the wrong time um, in these power, you know, hungry uh, struggles that are going on for various reasons. Uh, and you could say, well, this is the right thing or that's the right thing, but it's not, you know, when you go down to the microcosm of, uh, a brother and a sister dealing with it in the trenches um, and the rubble and, and dead parents and all of it. And then eventually dying themselves. Um, yeah. Good guys and bad guys doesn't apply to that anymore. It's just about survival and what would, you know, and then that uh, stripping all that away, it then allows you to um, kind of uh, put yourself in their shoes more or less. And kind of, uh, at least with me, I was like, you know, what would you do kind of thing? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because it's not about, Oh well, this is good and this is bad. It's about uh, you know where where you would take some of those things and maybe overlay them on overlay them on your opinions um, because you have your belief system or your nationality or or whatever. Uh, this isn't about that. Oh, well, Japan is bad, or you know they were the bad guy because they were the axis of evil or all of that. Mm -hmm. This is about um, uh, a brother and a sister and and what they did in these moments. Um, and you know, so often we see uh, these moments. Um, kind of exploited with with heroism, you know, and oh, they have to be heroes, and and uh, and this was just about kids being kids and trying to stay alive, and um, really kind of humanized it a lot. I thought I thought this movie was most successful as like not being a, a war movie first and foremost, but more of a an intimate portrait of the collateral damage of war itself, you know, mm -hmm. through the through these two brothers and sisters. I mean, it's such a tight knit uh, view of the cause and uh, effect of war on people who are not fighting in the war. They're just in the crosshairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I kept thinking of the Marine song from the sands of Iwo Jima. And I was like, wow, this is a very different take on World War II than that kind of vibe. You know, like it, I just kept thinking about that, like Jesus Christ, like the, you know, all the fighting that went on just nearby locally to this, to where these kids were experiencing all this, you know, really not that far away on the islands out there. You know, definitely, so. definitely. So, uh, to get back to the film, you know, very quickly, the, um, Saida and Setsuko characters get separated from their mom. Uh, they learn that, uh, everyone's being sent to the local elementary school for care. That's where, uh, they basically, well, the Saida character actually learns that his mom is initially in super bad shape. You know, she's gravely wounded. Her body's entirely bandaged and bloodied. Uh, she goes on to pass away from there very quickly. We see them taking her out in a stretcher, just sort of covered in all of these different insects. Maggots. And yeah, maggots Yeah, that was a nice well. touch. You know, the maggots pretty... grow, like, you know, before she was even completely gone. There's Or the just the use of flies also in this movie. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it, it. I mean, there was a really subtle visual cues that they use throughout the movie that just kind of like lays that undertone of the decay and death that they're dealing with on a daily basis as an island at war. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I think there's that one sort of shot towards the end when Sensuko's kind of towards the end and then the fly lands on her face and sort of walks around and, and she doesn't yeah, react, they do sort yeah. of use that, I guess, to, you know, illustrate, 
uh, just the decrepit and, and brutal nature that these guys are in. So, but they also do something uh, else that's really interesting is that I noticed there would be a lot of like these sort of juxtapositions with regard, especially with regards to like the color palette and the tonality. And so one of the examples is that pretty much immediately the shot after the mom being uh, taken out on the stretcher, again, with the graphic insects and maggots and whatnot, uh, it, it's like there's this sort of scene of Saito walking and the sky's really brightly blue and he comes across this like water that's sort of gushing from a pipe, you know, and instead of being, um, you know, like uh, polluted or anything like that, it's 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 drawn like really fresh and colorful, you know, it like sort of feels refreshing as you're watching it. And, you know, they would sort of uh, contrast a lot of that in these sort of day after ways, you know, where there'd be these horrible air raids and the air raids are always, you know, represented with these browns and muddied color palettes. Uh, Ryan, to your point earlier, earlier, you know, using the brown outlines instead of the traditional black. And then the next day it'd just be like bright and vivid. And I thought, um, I thought that was really interesting the way that they did that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I thought the, the most interesting juxtaposition that came across to me was the actual, the fireflies and the fire bombing. Like the, yeah. the, there's something something so beautiful in nature and something man-made that is so destructive and just kills at mass. But like the fact that they had they, they almost had the same effect of in the sky. Like, was it, you know, fire bombs from planes or was it like, you know, insects flying around making the world more beautiful? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a triple entendre, right? The fireflies title. The, the kids are the fireflies because their light only lasts for so long. You know, the bombs are the fireflies because they actually look like fireflies, you know, and then, of course, the fireflies themselves. So, yeah, I, I think that there's some really strong visual elements of this movie. I really like the um, the what is it? The uh, the nether world or like, you know, wherever he's speaking from where yeah. they're still healthy and still wearing the same clothes as the first day they left home. You know, mm. that has this, you know, kind of sepia tone the entire time. So they, they easily can fill the sa- the scene with both of, you know, both versions of Seta and Setsuko, yeah. you know, and I, I really like, like a lot of those moments, you know? Yeah. And the, and the, and the color scheme too is, you know, they're, they're using that same sort of orangish uh, color as the fireflies to your point, Seamus. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's uh, to your, uh, again, to Seamus's point earlier with the way that, the way that the bombs and the fireflies are both visually represented in very much the same fashion, I'm sure is some sort of statement right now, uh, whether it's sort of that there's, you know, beauty and violence, whether it's sort of that, um, you know, uh, the both the, 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 the night sky is populated by, you know, good and bad, but they're sort of, you know, represented from the mm-hmm. same sort of place. Maybe it's I mean, the, you, maybe that's it's the good and bad are both fleeting because like the again the light of the firefly only lasts for so long. I mean they make a point of showing that the fireflies die off even after just one evening of yeah. being in the cave with them, right? So I think that the the whole point they're trying to make on like a on a philosophical level, I think, is that mm-hmm. like even like this too shall pass. You know, like the bombs mm-hmm. might be falling right now, but eventually their light will go out. And a different time will come and, you know, people will be healthy and happy again. And sort of in, in a way, there's a little bit of that return at the end of the film, you know, where they kind of say that life will restart just from the things that happen to characters towards the end. Not the main characters, but everybody <laughs> around them. Yeah, no, no. that's And that's and, and that's a strong point. And actually, yeah, in that way, it did kind of remind me a little bit of because um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not somebody who's like, you know, 
well-versed in a lot of these sort of deep metaphor films, right? Like, I grew up on 90s films like Jurassic Park and Aliens. So, <laughs> What is um, Eraser know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? Just talking about it right now. Yeah, so I don't have, like, a deep well of, you know, these, like, really meaningful films to draw from. But just being a kid, it, it reminded me very much of, like, Charlotte's Web, right? In, in oh, yeah. the respect of just, like, these things happen and, you know, life and death are all part of a cycle. And, you know, mm-hmm. for as horrible as some of these things uh, may seem, you know, they're very necessary and they're part of life. Um, obviously, you know, represented in, in, in a more strong fashion when, you know, with human characters and all of that in actual, but um, it, it sort of hit that same place for me emotionally. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think what I thought was really interesting was, I mean, this is very realistic, I guess not interesting, um, is that when the mom dies, Satan never tells his sister. And he yeah. never finds out that his sister knows his mom is dead until his sister says, let's put the fireflies in a grave after that night in the cave. And yeah, she he says, actively goes out of his way to make sure she doesn't. Exactly. Actually. He's like hiding the ashes and stuff yeah. of the whole movie. And then she says, mama's in a grave. Let's put the fireflies in a grave just like mama. And he just that's when it becomes real to him. And I thought that that element was so realistic and so painful. And I just thought that was really beautifully handled, you know, because he didn't he didn't want to tell her he didn't want to have to explain what death was. But yeah. she figured it out. I mean, maybe the aunt had some – I mean, I don't think that aunt had any, like, compassionate, long, deep conversations in any nice way with anybody as far as I could tell based on her character. <laughs> but I think that, you know, it's somehow this little girl figured it out. And I thought that was a beautiful way to look at the cycle of life through this – well, you say four. I can't believe she's only four, you know. I guess yeah, in she's animation definitely, it's hard to tell, but yeah. Definitely precocious one, you know. Yeah. Um, but – yeah, and, and and I think that sort of introduces one of the concepts and themes of the film that I personally found really interesting, and you guys can feel free to chime on chime in on this, which is that, like, it's just sort of the, the overall nature of childhood, right? Because in many ways, I think the film is showing that, you know, a, a child in war is sort of stripped of that traditional childhood experience while at the same time responding to it in ways that only children can, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that it's also commenting on the fact that, like, uh, children are often smarter, more observant, et cetera, than we uh, make them out to be. You know, even though, like, you can tell earlier on there's a moment where Saida kind of sidesteps getting Satsuko to her mom. And she sort of gives a look where she just, like, doesn't really respond. And you can tell that, like, she knows that something's wrong, right? Like, she may not know that she's passed yet. Mm -hmm. And... I think that's a theme that comes up many, many times, which is that like so often, you know, we we go out of our way to try to, you know, shield children from some of the, the more horrifying realities of life and especially in these wartime situations, um, but that they, they figure it out. You know, they, they know something's wrong. It's just this this sort of intrinsic thing where even if they don't understand exactly the nature of the powers that be and what's going on, like sort of the way that like any animal knows if something's on fire, right? It's just that intrinsic animalistic sense of like, yes, something is definitely wrong here, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they still have that thing where they can take mortar shells and turn it into a game of tic-tac-toe or dolls, right? Like they still have that imagination at play to deal with these situations. And I think that's one of the most unique aspects of, um, you know, being a ch- specifically a child in wartime. And obviously I, I haven't, you know, very, uh, suburban, you know, uh, life over here. I haven't had to go through any sort of trauma like well, that. I, mean. I don't know what it's like. And that's why it's great to watch these movies and sort of get these reality checks and realize that like, 
you know, even though this is a cartoon, like, again, you know, this is a semi-autobiographical tale and people dealt with this. They went through exactly what is being represented here, mm-hmm. you know, and it's important for us to remember that this is part of the human experience. And very thankfully, it's not any part of the four of ours experiences, yeah. but, um, you know, we're very privileged in that respect. And, and this is something that happens to people. It's not just a fictional story, you mm-hmm. know. Well, the uh, one like uh, a perfect moment of not knowing the the complexity of what was actually happening, but uh, a scene that really stood out to me is when they were going <clears> to <throat> sell the kimonos that belonged to uh, their mother, and she she didn't mm-hmm. yet know that uh, she was dead. But the way she reacts and is like just grabbing onto the kimonos, like these are mamas, and like you know, like don't take them away. You know, you could even argue she she sort of just by that point sense like mom's not coming back. Yeah, you definitely. know, but like just it was super emotional, like just something as simple as like we're going to take these dresses. No, you're not. You know, like this is these, these yeah. belong to my mom. And I think at that point, too, because that's probably one of the last sort of things that remain. That's her possession, too, at the time. You know, they're yeah. they've, they're starting to trade all their stuff for food because nobody can get any food. And um, yeah, I think that was like the last sort of remaining physical token that she probably had of her mom. And that's where that came from. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, not only are we privileged to not live in war zones, but like we don't live in the same time. I mean, in the early 20th century, even in America, people were often making their own preserves and, you know, pickling their own stuff and, yeah. you know, really responsible for the day to day, you know, consumption of food on a different level that we will ever understand having grocery stores nearby and fast food and restaurants and all that. Like it just wasn't the same life in the early 20th century before all the modern conveniences. And that's one of the things that I really thought about throughout this movie is like, Man, no plumbing, no fucking heat or cool air or, you know, just refrigerated food or food of any kind. I mean, just the amount of scrounging that has to happen as the story goes on. You really have to wonder, as you said earlier, like, what would you do? You know, I mean, Craig, uh, in all fairness, I do live in Florida, so you're right. Sorry. Uh, Three of us are privileged enough to not have to. Right. Right. Yeah, uh, but- after we're through here, I got to go, uh, you know, uh, finish cleaning up the alligator that I'm having for dinner. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, check the gator traps, but I guess you did that before yeah. we started recording. No, yeah, no, we, we got we we got some fresh gator now um, on deck. Oh, there's that New Orleans accent. I was going to say, he doesn't want to bust it out when we do Hard Target on a guest show. We were guests on a show, and then he busts out this perfect New Orleans accent right now. That's right. Because, it, you know, honestly. Have you been working on it since then? Was it, it like pissed, traumatizing it, and you worked on it? Nothing pissed me off more about podcasts. <laughs> I wasn't able to stick the landing on the on the Cajun accent. That's so interesting because we also movie. we also covered we also covered Hard Target at the very beginning of our podcast. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah, That's yeah. Awesome. yeah one of the first no, few episodes actually. We briefly. I don't think we actually mentioned this in the episode, but Hard Target was sort of responsible for the love affair between our two podcasts because Jason and I started making Uncle Duvet jokes on Twitter, and <laughs> one thing led to another, okay. and here we are. Uh, Got it. So. Might call it a duvet cover. That's right. Hey, That's right. <laughs> yeah. Ryan's a puntastic well, uh, spe- individual. Speaking of eat, eating things locally, did I mean I know this probably would have been off tone, but like, did did anyone wonder like why they didn't at least try eating fireflies? I mean, like, <laughs> because I mean, you know, you're starving to death. Wouldn't you want any protein possible? Like, that would have been a, a weird addition to the symbol element of the fireflies, though, because yeah. then you're like, well, what does it mean level. that the children are eating themselves? What? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think. I think it's probably because if that was the case, then they don't have a movie. Because <laughs> like, we just, ate the, we just ate the feet. It's like, oh, actually. I also don't think the little girl would have been okay with that. Like, yeah. she, that was like the one of the few comforts she had when they actually got to that shelter. So, 
Yeah. Also, are we like, are we certain that that's like a source of protein? Like 100%? No, no, no. no. I, I, I no mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if you're, if you're like a survivalist, I'm sure you eat like, you know, whatever insects you can find, you know, you <laughs> yeah. do what you have to do. One thing that I actually raised a question at the very beginning of this movie, and maybe somebody can answer this for me. So when the first air raid's going off and mm. they're in the, you know, the, the, the garden of the, the house and they're like, well, no, mom, you, you know, you get to the shelter, like, you know, whatever, like, it seemed weird to me that like they were more concerned with the mom getting to the shelter on time than the children. Like no, that no just, just just him. The mom. Wait, yeah, where was the yeah? No, girl? she's like, you stay with your brother, listen to your brother. It's like, oh well, yeah, yeah, why, yeah. Why, I mean, my question was like, wouldn't you have more? Let's all go with together. Your kids getting there. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I it was know. very laissez-faire. Like they, they, the whole thing was just so nonchalant in the sense of like, okay, get there when you can. We're gonna go to the shelter, the air raids, and like it, the intensity of the film definitely built throughout as we started to see the repercussions of these things. But uh, yeah, I agree with you. the The opening sequence of the film, I didn't really the way they set the tone initially in the subway, and then we go to this happy little place where the mom's just like okay you know get all your things you know let's go to the shelter and nobody really seemed very the, the sense of urgency wasn't there in that scene I guess. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say I mean Jason you made the point that air raids were sort of this this common thing throughout the movie and I thought maybe they were already common you know like it was yeah. already common enough that the danger didn't seem so extreme and, and actually I mean maybe history has something to do with this because I actually just read a little bit up on this maybe this is even IMDB but essentially when Kobe because this takes place in Kobe when Kobe was firebombed it was only firebombed once or twice and everything else that was done around Kobe was to mine the bay and to bomb factories and airfields specifically so this the innocent I'm sorry the innocents the citizens were not bombed as often as like in Tokyo and other places. So mm. it's possible that there was some, you know, historical reason that the mother wasn't that concerned. Like it was local, but not right on the top of their heads as far as she knew. Cause even when, yeah. when Seta later is caught in one, he it, like, there's maybe it's the same one. It's like a slow motion reveal of how dangerous the fire actually will be. Like there's this long, I mean, like two minute silent sequence more or less where he's just kind of standing in the street. He's like looking at little fires Little fires, little fires, and then mm-hmm. suddenly a house erupts in an explosion, you know, and it's like yeah. then the tempo of the movie picks up. Yeah, that's one of the more interesting things I think about kind of watching some of these older films is that I think there's a lot of times where because they're product of their times, there's things that were taken for granted when it was made that everybody just sort of knew about mm-hmm. that maybe 60 years later we don't quite inherently know. Um where, you know, it wouldn't have made sense to explain it back then because it's like, so for example, like one of the things is uh, there's sometimes where I'll watch like old war movies, right? And especially when they're in color, I feel like they don't kind of introduce what, army is what color and stuff like that because you're just sort of supposed to know mm-hmm. right and i think at the time it's like okay well when you're in the middle of this war you know they're like oh yeah our you know these soldiers wore green these soldiers wore blue da 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 and it would so- sort of be like too on the nose to go in and explain that mm-hmm. um that's sort of tangential to what i'm saying here which is that like again if it sort of understood like you're saying that the moms maybe it was just customary the moms went out the brothers took them uh, there could be some sort of historical context, and it's kind of difficult to to know that sometimes. Um, yeah. Especially on, a, kind on, of a, take on a family structure level, too. There could be like some Japanese tradition of you know the structure of the family, especially with the dad away at war. The the son is responsible for the 
I don't know, you like the eldest son is responsible yeah. for the kids. I don't know. I mean, there there could be all kinds of tradition. You're right. I mean, there there could be some reason, but I didn't find that that was like a, a distracting element of the story. Yeah. Oh no, Incorrect. I just I just yeah. it did raise a question in parenting though. I was just like, uh, you, don't, <laughs> you, you you seem to be more concerned like, oh, I should get over there, and it lucked out yeah. for the kids obviously because <laughs> what befalls their mom by getting to the shelter is like, well, you know, she's just mm-hmm. like pretty much burned alive. Um, well, and who knows if yeah. she even made it? I mean, they don't even say. That's yeah. the thing is like. It just it's it's just a fulcrum to separate the characters, you know. Uh yeah, I believe that's kind of what's going on there. So, um, and then there was a there was a sort of re uh, reintroducing one of the themes um, that I had touched on earlier. Uh, there's a scene like halfway through where they sort of go to the beach, and again, this is one of those day afters where it's sort of presented in this very bright color palette. You know, the water's very refreshing, etc. But they're sort of walking along the beach, and. Setsuko finds a dead body and it's covered by like a sheet and like the feet are sticking out and she's like oh what's this and he's like nothing come here let's 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 learn how to swim mm-hmm. um and I thought that so I think that if you kind of want to distill it down the second act is largely about sort of again Saita's character trying to shield her from the horrors of war you know mm-hmm. and and reposition things and just give her like whatever sort of semblance of a childhood she can right um mm-hmm. And but then sort of her just, again, being smart enough to sort of intuitively know that there are things going on, but also being stronger as a child than we might give her and them credit for. Right. Because I don't think it's that she's pretending necessarily that these things aren't happening. Um, She's maybe too young to understand the severity of it, but it's just like, you know what? Yeah, these screwed up things are happening, but I can also still have these moments of being a kid and I can still play and I can still be in my imagination. Well, yeah, I mean, um, if anything, Saita is the one who's pretending, you know. Exactly, one hundred percent. Yeah. So again, I thought it was it was a sort of a salient point that the the film made um, over the course of the second act to sort of um, just beat that in a little bit. So, and then you know, we also get that very nice scene uh, that sort of speaks to the lack of permanence, right, and just the fleeting nature mm-hmm. that we talked about with the fireflies, where um, you know, there's the scene where they finally have. They've set up house in this, uh, it's, a, it's an old bomb shelter, right? That they sort of just have gone in and made their own and they've sort mm-hmm. of furnished. Um, they set up this mosquito nest and then while they're resting, like they basically go out and collect a bunch of fireflies and bring them in and it sort of lights up the whole thing and, and uh, you know, glows and it's very pretty. And I thought it was interesting that like while they're in there and they're sort yeah. of like resting yeah. that Saida actually sort of has like a daydream about a military procession about a naval procession, and I believe it was specifically about his father. Is that correct? Yeah, it was his yes. father's ship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and and that's sort of something that we haven't really talked about at all, which is that, and the film doesn't really focus on it a lot, but to your point that, uh, kind of to your point that you had brought up earlier, just about um, it's sort of, you know, the position that it takes on looking at the war, I think it is a very sort of homespun you know, nationalistic, one-sided view of the war through this kid's eyes, right? Again, it's not interested in telling the balance, but it's like he very much believes in, you know, the cause of the Japanese nation and the strength of the military and all of that, as so many of those people did. And I think that's kind of the point is of that sequence. I agree with that, although, you know, even though it is nationalistic, I I do think there is no political motive specifically, which we did sort of talk about. So I found it kind of interesting that there is that element of remembering this naval parade that he witnessed or 
whatever they call it. It's not a parade. I don't think it's not this wrong. Maybe when it's in the water, it's not a parade anyway. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I found that to be kind of interesting. Um, especially, and, and we did, I want, I want to back up a little bit before the shelter because there's okay. an element that I want to talk about a lot. Sure. Um, and the, it sort of ties in, in, the, in that, uh, you know, this element of national nationalistic pride and duty to the country and stuff like that is sort of put you in said duty. Yeah, I did say duty. <laughs> and that's exactly how I meant it. Uh, <laughs> uh, shit jokes really help this movie, by the way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, really grounding the humor here. <laughs> but, uh, but no, like the ant really puts it in his face. Like his bitch ant really just shoves the fact that he's like, 14 in his face like you're a man now you should be fighting for the war effort one way or another yeah. you know or working a job or it's like even though his school and his job and everything has been totally burned out and he's got no place to go she you know she kind of becomes selfish more and more each day you know even though mm-hmm. she i presume invited them to stay there so i wanted to ask you guys what did you guys think about that element of the story where it's like the kids are handling it better than the adults in a way yeah you know yeah i think i think that's kind of you know one of those points again which is uh sort of in a way it's sort of i think it's it's the same sort of relationship a little bit that maybe saita has with setsuko but like with him going to like the next generation in terms of like um each generation up thinks they're doing a great job Mm -hmm. because really and even saying it out loud, maybe that's the whole point of the the mother character initially is that she's sort of doing the same thing to Saita that Saita's doing to Setsuko, where it's like, oh, no, this war thing isn't really happening. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine, right? And that's where her sort of aloofness comes from is it's really just her trying to – because, you know, I mean, Saita may be 14 and his aunt might think that he's an adult, but that's also his, <laughs> his, his aunt, right? Mm-hmm. And usually the aunt characters can – you know, be strict, whether it's Cinderella or whatever, right? Like, uh, ants are either super sweet or they're super vindictive with no in-between, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So she could be that more, you know, and then that's a contrast to the mother character that, again, is still just trying to give Saita whatever semblance of a teenage childhood that they can have, right? Um, Maybe that's where that comes from. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I just thought thought that was an interesting element, you know? It's like there was so little compassion in her, and they really made a point of showing that over and over before – the kids eventually left to make their own way in the shelter, you know? And I, like, there's a, I don't know, there's, there's something very heartless about that that I thought was really interesting to show. Cause I think it's about the desperation. It's not that she actually was perhaps heartless. I mean, maybe who knows, even though she wasn't the sister of the mom, maybe they're just all shitty parents in that family. But like, you know, it it was just, it was a fascinating thing, you know, cause usually when you watch a war movie, again, it's about the heroism of it. And you almost never see people being shitty to each other who are, on the same side of the fight. Yeah, you know, definitely. Well, I mean, as you run out of resources though, I mean, right. You know, there's only so much to go around and, and yeah. you got to all of a sudden now two more mouths to feed a uh, desperation kicks in and you start to, you know, see what people are really made of, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when you start to peel that back, I mean, you put any one of us in a situation like that, um, you know, give all four of us one microphone and watch us all fight over the attention we, we are starved for. <laughs> Isn't that what we're doing? Sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, no, but I, I do think that I do think there's actually a really interesting point. And I do think that it's a much more pointed commentary, uh, which I think is kind of what you're trying to bring up um, than, than, than we might realize. Because so much, I think, of the point of what the filmmaker is trying to say is about the lack of compassion from everyone around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think specifically the lack of compassion that the adults are showing the children, right? Um, and and that could be a unique 
mindset to the filmmaker. That could be something that was sort of maybe looked back upon and realized after the fact as a nation, right? Doing soul searching. Like, I don't, I don't know enough about the situation to be able to say that. But yeah, when you look at the fact that, I mean, the main character, the main character starved to death because he was neglected, right? The, his, his sister, who was the main supporting character and arguably a main character, same thing happened to her. And then this, this point is actually further reinforced towards the end. So we're actually at the point now where, you know, uh, Setsuko's revealed to be, you know, actually sick. Uh, primarily she's suffering from mal- malnutrition and that's being exacerbated by the fact that she has diarrhea, which was obviously, you know, a strong cause of death back then. Um, during the war efforts. So this is a very common situation um, that we would learn uh, that people found themselves in at the time. And I think that the callousness of the people, and the funny thing is I don't think that it's necessarily a metaphor for like the government. I think that, I think that he's being very, I think that the commentary is directed at the people, you know, people's Mm -hmm. lack of Mm -hmm. compassion Mm -hmm. for other people. And we see it expressed when he takes her to the doctor And he's basically like, hey, you know, she's dying. What can I do? Like, blah, blah, blah. Is it this and that? And the doctor's like, get the hell out of here, kid. She's fine. She just needs some food. Next. And he, like, erupts. And he's like, where the hell am I supposed to get food? We're all starving, right? And and, and again, so it's just this repeated callousness and dismissiveness of the haves, if you will, around the have-nots. I think that's a large... Uh, part of the that's commentary. Fair. I mean, that's probably why the opening scene is what it is, because I was actually asking myself that exact question in that, you know, why is the opening scene all about people walking past these kids and not doing mm-hmm. a goddamn thing to help any of them and just being yeah. like, well, another one's dead, you know, another one bites the dust. Like, there, it definitely was it was pointed, you know. The, uh, following that scene at the doctor's um, where she's, you know, she's already heading towards death's, death's door, it did raise yeah. a, a logical question because uh, I think at the end of Act 1, beginning of Act 2, they're on the train train and he's telling her he's like it's gonna be all right mom has x amount of money in the bank right now it seems like he doesn't go to get that money from the bank until he has that he erupts and finds out japan surrendered and then he Mm -hmm. brings her like watermelon and food and she dies with you know after one you know bite of watermelon i'm like well if they established that the money was there like why did it take him so long to actually go get the money to buy the food it was too late because, you know, she got one yeah. bite of a watermelon well, cir- that died. Circumstances changed somehow because and they don't explain why, but money wasn't being accepted because there's a whole scene with the farmer where he's like, I'll yeah. buy whatever you want to sell me. And the farmer's like, I can't sell you anything. Yeah, it's more about resources than finance. And it was, so it was about trade. They made the point that it was about bartering at that point. But then, you could have all the money you know, in the so, world, but if there's no rice to yeah. buy because the farmer right. said, well, you, you know, know, saying it out loud too right now, like I just recalled that there was a lot of talk earlier about um, all of the rations being reserved for the soldiers. Mm-hmm. Right. There and was so that maybe too. right now it's like basically, well, once they surrendered, mm-hmm. now all of those resources are once again at people's disposal. That, that would, that would be logical. Okay, that, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 But you're right. They don't really go out of their way to really express that. Like you just you kind of got to work that through yourself mm-hmm. after the fact. Well, this movie doesn't spoon feed you. I mean, I no, like correct. I like the no. fact that, yeah, it, it is it is subtle. It's very, you know, it's very symbolic and metaphorical. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't like let me over explain so you understand why this is important or this is tragic. You know, I like oh, I, mean, I like that about this movie. If anything, it's the opposite. I mean, the nonlinear storytelling, a lot of it, I was like, when is this supposed to be? Like, they would bounce back and forth. And I'm like, when did this moment? This moment clearly happened, like, in a time we didn't see. We glossed over, and then they went back. And I found that to be really interesting. It's like, 
even beyond anything Tarantino would do, because Tarantino, you can follow why usually it's nonlinear, or at least follow that it is nonlinear and not be like, wait, this is earlier? Hold on a yeah. second. I'm kind of confused here. But I, I kind of like that they leave it up to you to do that because I think it adds to the lyrical nature of the movie. Or, I mean, since they, the way it opens, I mean, like that whole idea of like you've seen your your, your life flash before your eyes, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it's going to be flashed linear to you you know like sure. and if, no, no, if the exactly. whole pretext is like this is you know i'm i know when i die then this is what led to it i mean i thought that it was just uh it re- reinforced like just this genuine feeling that this movie has as a whole definitely yeah definitely and yeah so you know pretty much at this point we're kind of uh marching forward towards the at the end of the film like i said setsuko's pretty much you know, she, she's unfortunately, she's not long for this world. And yeah, now that the resources have opened up, Saita is able to go get the watermelon. He brings it back to her. You know, we, we can tell right away that, you know, she has no energy, that she's she's not going to last. Uh, he's able to, you know, get her to at least have a little bit of the melon, which, you know, she sort of eats and says it's good and smiles. And we sort of understand that that's the last that we're going to see and hear of her. And... It's interesting because, again, you know, we get this very juxtaposed visual, right, where Setsuko's just died. I mean, this 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 adorable four-year-old girl, which, by the way, and I haven't even looked this up. I don't know if you guys did, but um, we haven't really talked about, like, the voice acting at mm-hmm. all and, and specifically of the little girl, Setsuko. Uh I don't know if any of you have any info on who that was, if it was really a young, a young girl, if it was, like, a voice actor because – uh, I mean, I adored that character for and and you know it, you have to love that character for her death to mean as much as it does, and I think that that's achieved by exactly two aspects of production, which is the animation, which Craig you spoke to earlier, but also the voice acting, which we didn't. I think so, and and well, from what I understand here, I'm going to try to find this on IMDb. Um, the uh, the little girl is one of the youngest voice actors ever in a, in a Japanese movie, and she was so young and unable to uh, speak clearly that they didn't give her very much to say. So all she did hmm. in the audition was introduce herself and say, my name is Ayano Shirashi. I am five years old. That's all she said. <laughs> and they were like, you got the part. So You are here to die. <laughs> yes, <I> <laughs> you <laughs> killed my father. Yeah. <laughs> you are prepared to die. Exactly. <laughs> and she killed everybody in the room. Uh, but uh, she still got the part. Weird. So, no, I mean, it's a very authentic thing. And actually, I read that the uh, the the voice actor for the dubbed version is like a 69-year-old you know, American woman. And it's kind of like, what the fuck? I mean, that's pretty like, much the so... way that that goes, right? It's either yeah. like straight like children like Peanuts or like, you know, Nancy Cartwright. You know, well, or like Tara for... Strong, for instance. She does so many voices of young girls in yeah. so many different animated series. And she's like... 50, you know, no, no offense. Isn't there. she Miss Minutes on the Loki she series? She is Miss Minutes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And to say she's 50 is not an insult. Anyway. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I thought the voice acting was really strong, especially because you have to spend so much time with these two characters, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And yeah, and... Uh... <laughs> I know Ryan. We sort of t- uh, talked off about how funny it was when, uh, and and one of the things that it took us a minute to work through. But we're talking specifically about where after Setsuko passes the next day, and he goes to basically get like the charcoal and you know to dispose to cremate the body. 
Um, and just the, the, the casual nature that the, the charcoal salesman is just like, oh, yeah, beautiful day out there. Well, you're going to need some charcoal for the bodies. Here you go. And, I have it in my oh, notes here's here. all the bamboo. Jesus, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that yeah, no, Ryan, Ryan notes. was like, dude, like, what's with this guy? Just like, oh, yeah, here's how much you need for burning bodies. And, <laughs> sure is a nice day. It does it does reinforce that callousness. Great day for burning bodies. You know, like, it does reinforce the callousness that's but shown yeah, throughout, exactly. you know, like, well, from the doctor yeah. to the, you know, to whoever. It's just like, it's like, oh, you know, it's still a oh, it's sunny, sunny day. Beautiful. Well, you, you know, you burn a, a child's body this way most efficiently. And it's yeah, just exactly. like, I mean, it does. Well, so, yeah, you have any trouble, come back. I'll help you. I'll help you out with some advanced tips. Yeah. He, he just sounds like such an arsonist connoisseur, too. It's like, uh, you know, use some bamboo for the smell. Uh, I recommend it. <laughs> all these, like, you know, specific things. And it did, you know, obviously the, the commentary there was that it was so common uh, that yeah, exactly. he, you had dealt, he had dealt with it so many times that it's like, oh, no, you just do, do a little little this you know a little honey for a sore throat little bamboo for a child burning you know <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah and again you know, and it really yeah it really like uh just reinforced you know that whole message and then um you know it also has what i thought was the most emotionally powerful scene which is when he's sort of you know and look i, I don't know about you guys but i feel like so much of my like emotional response to scenes uh is it really it's the music that really just sells it right um, because like, dude, I mean, once you, once they bring in that opera song towards the end and then he's, you know, looking back and seeing just these vignettes of Setsuko being a child, you know, and just playing and like, that was what really got me. Like that well, was wanna, what yeah. brought me to tears. The, the one moment in the film oh, where me too. I was like, I, really I was fucking, like I have an element of somewhat recent loss and it was a cat that was a female. So it's like a little girl kind of lost, yeah. you know, in my mind. And so whenever I see something like that, I fucking crushed, but of course I think that they, it's, it's even worse though <laughs> in this montage because they show you, Basically, like what I wrote down was she spent her last days alone while he fought to keep them alive. So she was basically entertaining herself in all of those scenes. Mm -hmm. He was never present in any of those scenes. So I was like, holy shit, this poor fucking little girl just literally had to spend all this time alone. You know, and how, it's my how, understanding that that's the true part of the story. So, since, uh, oh, really? What is it? Saita? Uh, not Saita. Saita, thank you. Uh, Saita, you know, wrote the, the character of Saita was written by the author uh, as a means of grief. So he wished he had died, mm-hmm. but he did not die. He proceeded on um, because apparently just out of desire for survival, selfish desire for survival, he fed himself first before he fed his daughter or oh, sister man. rather. And so and his sister died of malnutrition um, and all of that, everything, you know, played out as is, except for him going into the... Um, a subway system and, and dying. So when he says he died that day, uh, that's metaphorically mm-hmm. like, I wish I had died that day more or less, or I had died inside that day. Um, because ever since then I've been coping with the fact that I, you know, lost my father in the war in the Navy. That was true. Lost his mother in a bu- uh, air raid. That was true. And, and lost his sister to malnutrition because he fed himself first out of desire for survival. And, um, you know, uh, fuck right jesus yeah fuck. no that's that's jesus crushing <laughs> no that and is actually, a proper note that is yeah, yeah. And that actually reminds me like i was just uh i was just i don't know if i'm misremembering this or not but in that opening scene is is there a part where he the someone leaves him a sandwich and he refuses to eat it no they somebody says something like rice 
like some kind of rice balls or rice bun of does some kind. Does he eat it or does he not? He doesn't eat it. No, in fact, he fall, when he falls over, either he lands on it or it's already gone. So I don't yeah. even know. Yeah, so I, so I actually wouldn't be surprised if maybe that was, uh, you know, again, some sort of communication that like he, maybe once he realized, you know, after she passed and he realized he allowed himself to die as well as, as, as a form of punishment, you know, yeah. by yeah, refusing maybe. to eat. One of the uh, visual symbolic things uh that really you know hit home for me uh, as far as like just the slow painful death of starvation was the the fact that you know the the, the sweetest thing she loved was, was those little fruit candies right but like yeah. when those had run out like that scene where he like you know puts water in the can mm-hmm. and to get the last flavors and she's drinking it from the bowl and she's like oh all the flavors and you know it's like that's yeah. that was super sad like the fact mm-hmm. that like that was as good as it got at this point was drinking flavored water from a candy a candy jar yeah you know yeah definitely but at the same time it was like it was really sweet and i think that's one of the like so one film, actually, I didn't bring this up yet, but one film that I was really reminded of throughout this, especially during that second act, was The Road. I don't know if you guys yeah. have seen that one. No, that, yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, and I thought that it was the same thing where The Road is basically just like, uh, you know, these two people and, and specifically the father character just doing nothing but dealing with trial and tribulation and mm-hmm. just persisting for no other reason than to protect, in that film, his son. And, you know... In spite of just constant, constant hardship and all these horrible things that happen, it's that love for his son that ultimately drives him. Uh-huh. And it's those little moments in that movie, like where they share the Coke and, and other things like that, where we see these similar sort of moments. Um, I thought that was sort of part of the entire um, point of the film is, again, just that like for, for, for a lot of people, you know, this is just a depressing situation and sort of in that movie the same way that we have the um uh, what's her name from uh, Fury Road yeah yeah and she's like why do I even want to like survive in this world right um and he's and he's then his character is just like well that's just what we have to do right I think that same theme theme is explored here you know and it's the filmmaker's intent to show you that like yeah on one hand you know maybe just the you know her experiencing the joy of this juice could be looked at as sad but through another lens when you have nothing it's a moment of beauty as mm-hmm. well you know and there's well, and that's where the yeah. sort of divide lies that's the razor's edge of this movie but I, I wanted to mention also the other thing it has in common with the road is they're both they both appear on uh, lists of films that you can only watch once because they're so depressing. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I yeah, think this was number six on Esquire's uh, most depressing films of all time. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, well, and we can we can certainly close out with some discussion about that, I imagine. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I think that that's what this film is trying to do. Is it's trying to walk that razor's edge. It's trying to kind of show how this little boy is carving some sort of again childlike experience out of this you know war torn landscape. So every single opportunity he has, you know, to to make it happy, he does. And the same thing is true for Setsuko, even though she's a little girl, you know, like that scene of her playing after she dies, twist that fucking knife so hard because it is so many sweet little scenes. And by the way, one of the things that hit me about that montage was like they really held back most of the joy in the movie for that montage. Like even when... The, the moments that Seita is carving out some joy for them, it's still very, very bittersweet. But that montage specifically is purely sweet in terms of what you're watching. It's bittersweet because of the context, you know? Yeah, 100%. So and I think that's another brilliant. point that that scene tried to make too, which is that 
Um, you know, so, so often, especially in these later stages, you know, when, especially when someone's sick, it's like you can spend so much of your time trying to save them that you forget to spend the final moments that you can with them, you know? Yeah. And I think that was also a very uh, resonant point that that montage made. Yeah. A brutal piece of punctuation. I mean, yeah. I mean, that scene where she's like gripping him, she's like, don't leave me alone. You know, just like yeah. anything, just whatever, like take me with you. Just don't leave me alone. And, you know, yeah. he, he did, obviously. Out of, yeah, I out think of that, might have been, that might have been the line in the movie that hit me the hardest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. She's Definitely. just so desperate for him to not leave, you know? And you're just like, fuck her, <laughs> take her with you, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I hate to tell you, buddy, but this isn't going to work the way you think it is, man. Just take take advantage of those last moments while fuck. you can, you know? Seriously. Just, just accept. And, and, and that's part of it, too, is our ability, our inability to accept you know situations of loss and and grief and Mm. you know i mean there's a a fine again to your point these razor edges there's a fine line between you know optimism uh you know hopeful optimism and hopeless optimism right like there becomes a moment where it's like look dude you can fight as much as you want this is entirely beyond you there are forces so much stronger than you and you know your entire family your entire i mean you know again the 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 the, you know one or a, a few people up against forces like death and nature and politics you know, um, there. I think there's an element of of learning to accept that, so that you don't regret not spending those moments that you had. You know. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, listeners, that is the uh, fun time. That is Grave of the Fireflies. But um, again, you know, uh, for us, you know, we've been looking at a lot of genre films, and uh, there's a reason we put these films on here because I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I loved this movie. Like it was. I mean, I I I'm one of those people who, first of all. Uh, I, I, I enjoy emotional experiences, right? And I'm actually, like, cards on the table, like, I'm not always so great with emotions in real life. Go figure, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and we can go into a bunch of reasons for that, and we're not going to. But my point is I've long, <laughs> I've long held that one of the reasons that I personally love film to the degree that I do is it's a, is it's a sort of a shameless and open forum for you to experience emotions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, like... It could be the case that if someone in, you know, if there's a, 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 a loss in your family, for example, right, you might have to be the guy that has to be strong, right? Uh, or, or the girl, you know, whoever you are, like you might be the person in your family that has to stand up and be strong for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And you don't get the opportunity to grieve. You know, you have to be that show of support. Um, and, you know, so often I think that we can find ourselves being in that place and, Doing things like watching films where it's like, okay, this is two hours. It's me and the screen. I, I can I can have these emotions. I can let myself feel. And when it's over, like I can just go right back to being strong and being the person that I need mm-hmm. to be um, for everyone in my life. So I know that's you know kind of um, where I come from with a lot of that these films, and that's why it's always like a really rewarding experience um, to watch the emotional films, just as. Right alongside, you know, the great action films and shitty genre films and horror films that we all know and love, you know? Uh-huh. This movie, if anything, like that, that that's a, a way I would describe this movie. It is, yeah, it's not pleasant, but it is cathartic to like have that that uh, emotional release on a, on a real like, you know, raw level. Uh-huh. Because it, it does it doesn't spoon feed you like, oh, you should feel this way. It's just like this is life in all of its fucked up complexity 
in the yeah. you know the case of a war zone in this case but yeah i mean that, that's i agree with you the reason film is so powerful is it does let you have the ability to relate on a on a on a real emotional level with the character's struggle um and in this case loss yeah yeah well i think the complexity is kind of what makes it tick because if it was really i think trying to make you feel only this thing about this relationship and this little girl it wouldn't I don't know if it would work. I think the fact that it is showing all these social layers and kind of, you know, that it is the backdrop of the war or the war is the backdrop to this story more specifically. I think by having all those elements and the survival element, you really get a lot more out of this relationship, you know? Like, I don't know. I don't know if you'd be able to make a story this dire (laughs) without all of the elements, you know, because it is it is a little tough to follow in the sense that you're just like, oh my God, how much longer is this fucking movie? I want to <laughs> die right now so bad. Uh, you know, and in fact, I mean, I've reopened the sutures that I actually just uh, put in my wrist from last night. Just from talking about this, I've had to return to my original plan of taking my own life because this movie's so fucking uh, sad. Uh, uh, I, don't think that was I the shouldn't make suicide intense. jokes. That's a terrible fucking thing to do. <laughs> but I, I will say without question, uh, there is there's no more depressing animated film I've ever seen. I mean, no. Well, like, that, I was going to add that is that this is uh, very regional in the sense that um, I was really racking my brain as I was watching this to try to think of a, an equivalent or a parallel uh, animated experience I've had in American cinema. I know that we've mentioned a lot of live action. Yeah. Um, but you know, one thing the director had said is that, uh, he wanted it to be animated so that it, it's more about the circumstance and you could put yourself in these situations because if you're watching live action, um, then it's less personal, I guess. And your imagination isn't connected to the experience. You're more just hmm. watching a person like it's their problem. You know what I mean? Like we're watching this uh, actor go through this thing, playing this person. Hmm. Um, but he felt uh, that it was easier to kind of put yourself into these situations. If it was animated a little more uh, um, surreal, if you will. But uh, uh, as far as a- American cinema goes, you know, we'll use those moments, whether it be, uh, the, the mother of mine situation in, in a song from Dumbo to Bambi or the first 10 minutes of up, but to just make the whole film, the backdrop of war and tragedy and all of that. Um, you know, I, I was kind of coming up short. Do you guys know of any American animated experiences that would no. compare? No. Yeah. I, I've never, I've never <laughs> emotionally, I've never had, uh, this sort of cause and effect watching an animated film. I mean, and I mean, which is, yeah, which is yeah, why I think same. it's so successful and still is considered so esteemed and, and regarded because, yeah, I mean, it's that's hard enough to pull off in a, in a live action narrative, but to have that much like just deep resonance on a very painful level through through mm. a, a movie that looks cute, you know, like, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, I mean, but it's it, the subject itself is horrifying. Actually, I feel like American animation will use the subject matter like this as a catalyst for your characters. Sure. Like, the, like I said, like the opening of your film, uh, you know, uh, Disney's famous for it. You know, mm-hmm. you, the mother dies. Okay, great. Now you've got the kid on their own and they've got to go figure out how to do this thing. And they go through the changes, ta-da, at the end, they get the prince or whatever it is. Right. Uh, and they get live happily ever after. Um, but this isn't a happily ever after scenario from an animated story. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
I yeah, can't I mean, think well, of- look, I mean, American uh, American animation is first and foremost about making money. I mean, for most of it, and especially when you're talking about Disney, right? So, if you, I mean, Japan couldn't even get this film financed without selling it with My Neighbor Totoro. So, there's, I mean, there's no chance it's going to get financed. Yeah, and people here. actually read manga in Japan. Like, people love this style of art in Japan. And they yeah. still get this financed. Uh, I did think of an American movie, though. I did. Oh, think okay, of one. go for it. Watership Down fucking destroyed oh, me when uh, I was a little kid. I, yeah, I've never down. seen that one, dude, but yeah. I've heard it's right. devastating. It is so it's devastating. Too, yeah. yeah, so devastating. I still haven't rewatched it since I was like seven. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, But I but I keep wanting to. So, yeah, yeah no, I agree with you, though. And I, I think that, I mean, I'm fascinated by the element of the sophistication of Japanese audiences. And I so always wish that American audiences were that sophisticated. And by the way, I do think that they easily could be. It's just about what they're being given. Yeah. You know. I mean, the American audiences are out there. It's just in smaller kind yeah. of doses. You know what I mean? Like well, it's, because in, popular it's not the mainstream. Popular it's entertainment always... is not this sophisticated yeah, or this exactly. complex or, you know, interesting. So I think it's about shifting what's popular in this country because clearly there is an appetite, I think, when you really get down to brass tacks and talk to people in this country. So um, what do you guys think of the fact that this has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes? I'm surprised, I'm surprised, but also not. I mean, I think it deserves, I think it deserves every bit of it. Like, I think it's a, I think it's a great movie. And uh, actually, I'll tell you what, let's go ahead and let's, let's formally wrap this up here. So uh, one of the things that we do and Ryan, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and start you off here just so you can set the tone here. Um, so we always wrap up a film by doing two things. We ascribe three adjectives uh, that we think, uh, you know, describe our response to the film, give a little bit of backstory behind it. Uh, or not. You can just throw them out there if you want. And then uh, you can go ahead and you can either give it a grade rating a la Ryan Siebold or you can give it a uh, star rating out of five a la Jason Peters. I'll explain why we do that in a moment. So, Ryan, kick off our three adjectives. What you got, buddy? Uh, my first one is gut punch. A little hyphenated <laughs> adjective. This is honestly, I, I, I was kind of going back... Sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, we you can get super creative with these. Sometimes they're actually two words. It's a yeah. I think we've used whole there's sentences a lot, before. There's a lot of leeway here. Uh, We're not straight. Right. If it's two gut punch, it's a verb. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, Just, this movie is a gut. Yeah, it's a gut punch. Uh, it's, I think it's our first gut punch movie that we've done. I was going through this. Really? I know. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I don't think we've covered one yet. Um, so you I mean, just unless, earned the esoteric label is what you're saying. Hey, just, uh, this episode. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, unless you count the ending of Zardoz as like heartbreaking. You shut Connery up, Ryan. I told you to fucking shut the fuck up on Zardoz. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so gut punch. Uh, my, second, uh, my second adjective is gorgeous because, you know, you can't not talk about the art of this film. Um, it's just a captivating, good to look at, gorgeous movie the uh you know just the the angles that they show you in the sense of like it's very cinematic uh even though the animation style can be very simple at times um you take for granted that um you know we have pixar now and and uh i mean this this was being developed before lion king or little mermaid i mean you think of where animation was back then uh and what they had to go off of and what they were building on i would think that probably some of the more beautiful pieces would be like secret of nim or some of the stuff Don Bluth was doing. Disney was in the shithole at this time. So, you know, I know that, you know, there is Asian cinema that does exist prior to this animated cinema. But to me, this was my first real kind of reckoning from 88. I know this was the same year I think uh, Akira came out as well, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. True. Which is also a or gorgeous film. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and I have seen that. Yeah. So uh, gorgeous. And then the last one is Patient. I think the pacing of this film is just flawless. And that's what really gets the uh, the rating up for me is um, just how it lets you sit in these moments. Nothing is said until it needs to be. Um, 
it, it, it doesn't show you the action. It shows you how people respond to the action. Uh, the, the emphasis is put on just the right thing at all times. And I think that the, um, the film doesn't talk down to its viewer. Uh, it, it really, you know, expects us to live up to the film and not the film talking down to us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that it was, uh, you know, that the breaths in between these moments were very patient and, um, yeah. Definitely. Wonderful. When you said this movie was gorgeous, I could only think of your character from our Army of the Dead episode, and you said, gorgeous, this movie's horny. It's horny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a gorgeous film. Gorgeous. There's, no, there's nothing arousing exactly about this, this movie. I mean. No, I was going to say, it's exactly what this no. movie's not. There's nothing horny. In fact, uh, I actually also have in my notes that we uh, all together how now have gone from the Army of the Dead to just the dead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've taken the full gambit. Yeah. Once again, especially because this movie makes you want to kill yourself. Yeah, also true. Yeah. yeah. Seamus, what you got, buddy? Uh, I would say if I was going to pick three adjectives, uh, I would say um, genuine, somber, and heartfelt. Nice. Definitely. Yeah, not not going not, not gonna to contradict any of that. How about you, Craig? Uh, well, I almost went with compassionate, but after our discussion, I realized that there is such a focus on the lack of compassion of the people around the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think there's a compassion to the filmmaking. You know, the actual storyteller was very interested and compassionate towards the main characters. But I think ultimately that's actually sensitive would be the mm-hmm. adjective that I would use for that. Um, the second one is lyrical, which may play into the sensitivity. But I think that there is there is an element of magic in a lot of the small moments. And that was something I think they were really trying for. You know, obviously, as we talked about the gut punch, uh, Ryan, thank you, the gut punch montage uh, of her playing. That's very much, you know, all the lyricism you can possibly imagine pack into scenes, you know. So and then finally, uh, Hopeless, <laughs> because <laughs> it is I kept the other movie I kept thinking of was Into the Wild with Emil. Hirsch, which is one of the most maddening fucking movies I've ever seen because it is he's doomed. He dooms himself and you can yeah. just feel the doom coming. And I think that that is sort of how this movie goes too. Is like it, it you just know. And I, I mean, I'd seen this 20 years ago or something. I broke the, you know, rule of the, the list of movies you should only watch once because they're so sad. And I watched it twice, <laughs> you guys. Uh, yeah. And it is... Nice. It is dire as fuck. Like, it, you just know it's not going anywhere good, especially because the main character's dead at the beginning and he's alone. So you, it's like, <laughs> there's no spoilers happening. You know the little girl's not going to make it. So it's, I don't know. It's a very interesting experience <laughs> in that. Perfect selection for a children's birthday party. So yeah. any any parents out there listening, pick this up. You know, you got a bunch of kids coming over for some pizza and cake. Throw this on. They'll love it's, it. It's, yeah. You know, you can put it on with no sound. No big deal. Like, they don't need the subtitles. <laughs> Still just a perfectly 100%, happy experience. 100%. So, uh, all right. And then for my three, um, I've got subtle. Uh, I really like the way that the film just didn't beat you over the head like we talked about over the course of our discussion. Uh, even, even just a lot of the things uh, that we discussed here, I didn't really observe beforehand. So. Um, and that's always the cool thing about having these discussions. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of these that you'll realize. I thought it was a genuine film. You know, it didn't. It wore its heart on its sleeve. It let you know what it was. It wasn't cynical. Um, it actually tried to find, you know, these brief moments of, of happiness and um, positivity in just the most dire set of circumstances. Um, and then obviously an emotional film. You know, it's something that definitely... 
uh, you know, it's slow builds in terms of just the weight that it sort of stacks on your shoulders. And then it just kind of, you know, go heads and, 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 and cracks your back at the very end and lets all of the ugly emotions spill out. Um, but you know, every now and then I think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing for us mm-hmm. to have. Like I said, uh, you know, not everything needs to be uh, dick jokes and crazy monsters from beyond, you know, it's good to have these uh, really thoughtful, you know, thought provoking, heartfelt films. So, uh, yeah, really enjoyed this one. We're going to go ahead and we're going to slap a formal rating on it. Like I said, you can give a grade rating, you know, F through A plus, or you can give a star rating out of five. Uh, Seamus, let's start with you. What you got? I'll go with the uh, the school grade ratings and I'll give this a solid A. Nice. That's my man, Seamus. Keep it with the letter grade. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> uh, Craig, what you got, man? Well, I'll be irreverent and I'll go with a star rating. A. I'm going to go, this is going to go, well, you know, it's always got to be opposing teams with us, Ryan. That's just the rules. <laughs> uh, it's in my writer. Um, the uh, the thing is, I don't know why I have to do this, but I have to give this uh, a four and a half, not a five-star rating. And I yeah. don't know exactly why that is. I just felt like maybe, even though it is extraordinarily patient, sometimes I didn't feel extraordinarily patient with this movie. You know, yeah. it just no, it just I, felt a tad slow, and I understand that maybe it is because all the action was purposefully off screen, and this was about reacting to the action, as you just said, Ryan. But yeah, I still think it's a little bit it's just a little bit slow, and it's very downtrodden. So it is. I, I think it's appropriate that it's on lists of movies so depressing you can only watch them once. And that, to me, I don't know that element of only being able to watch it once or twice in twenty years. You know, it does it does knock just a tiny bit of the shine off of it, but it's still a an excellent movie definitely yeah um so i'll actually piggyback off of that because i'll say that like so i don't know about uh i mean obviously you just let us know like i often find that movies that people say that you can only watch once like i i really don't have a problem with them you know and i think that well okay so a movie like salo where you can only watch it once because you know they feed kids their own shit like yeah i don't need to see that that's a snuff film and a scatological like i don't i i once was plenty right like that's like that's like the sort of litmus test for uh you know shocking cinema right um but like i have seen requiem for a dream a dozen times at uh, least yep. right um, that was the example i was gonna say right? <laughs> like a movie that most people tell me like i only could get through that yeah. once i've watched it like 25 yeah times. no it's I think brilliant we need to leave these two alone to talk about <laughs> and i don't i don't know like i don't know if that's just because i have like something of like a depressing outlook on like i mean whose life is just all sunshine and rainbows out there sure. dude? like that, but I, life like, is rough life is dealing with you know yeah. sadness and depression and disappointment and ups and downs and like so what you know on one hand on what one hand you have the machinist i honestly didn't have an emotional response to but i mean did I, you watch that multiple times no but not because it was unpleasant i just it was because it was a mediocre film that i didn't really respond to emotionally True. Um, agree i did respond it, to it emotionally in horror <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but, yeah 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 uh but yeah, no. So like, um, like the thing, honestly, the things I have a hard time watching and Ryan, we talk about this all the time is, um, like the torture porn shit. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So anytime and specifically, uh, it's, it's the trifecta of nails, teeth, and eyes. Like anytime, <laughs> like, you know, the terrorists are using pliers to pull out nails. Like I'm out. Same thing with the teeth. When they got needles by the eyes, I'm out. It's too visceral. I feel that shit. I can't do it. Um, uh, and then, like I said, you know, feeding a bunch of school children their own feces. I'm out. That's once. That's a one and dunner. Uh, 
That's a good but, line to have, though. I think. I don't. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but no. So like, yeah, but like, you know, quote unquote depressing films. I, I mean, it's just again, it's like it's the spectrum of emotion that we deal with in life. Hundred percent. I mean, and I, I'm being slightly glib when I'm saying you can never watch it again. But it is, it is a movie so heavy that it's not. It's not something I would choose to watch for fun anytime in the near future, having now watched it for the second time in my life, you know? Yeah. Well, and again, like I started out earlier saying, uh, this is kind of a movie that you watch by yourself. Yeah. It's an experience. Yeah. It's like a, a personal experience that it takes you someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nothing I would want to share with anybody really. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, I would have to be pretty, you pretty be, comfortable with yeah, you. No, yeah, if you, I put, so if you're out there and we're dating and I put on grave of the fireflies, <laughs> You got me locked down. <laughs> or or you've this just like, it. or it's just like a, a a targeted play where you're like, oh, this chick digs emotion. I'm going to let mm-hmm. it all out here. Mm-hmm. She's going to cradle me afterwards. She thinks I'm all dick jokes. Wait till she sees Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, he's right. so soft. He actually, he's deep. Yep. Yeah. He's yeah. like, speaking of deep, baby, let's get at it. I'll go ahead and for an hour and a half. I got to leave. He's too sensitive. I'll go ahead and formalize mine, which is, uh, I'm going to give, I actually had the same thing you did, Craig. I'm going to give it, four and three quarter stars just shy of that five and it's it's kind of one of those things where i can't articulate it like when i when i think about it i think that's the thing you know one of the things that i've noticed the aspects of japanese cinema and i think that this relates to um to culture is that you know uh generally speaking you know uh the japanese people are much more reserved in their emotions right um, whereas Americans, we're loud and we're broad and like it's, you know, we're hard on our sleeve sorts uh, to, for, for a lot of us. Um, and when we do have emotions, they're very loud. That's why, you know, most of the climaxes are like screaming in the middle of the rain. Right. You know, whereas Kurosawa is just like, OK, let's just go ahead and wrap this up. Nice, tidy. Get out. Uh-huh. Right. So I do think that part of it is that as an American, go figure, you know, I have been conditioned to. Um, sort of appreciate more emotional experiences and, you know, which sounds funny coming from someone who their favorite filmmaker is Kubrick, right? Who's like the least emotional filmmaker that you could have out there. That's arguable, uh, man. Arguably. I yes, I know. That's his reputation. I agree with you. There's actually, quite a bit of emotion packed into all of this. I, I do agree with you on that, but so. it's a lot of people would disagree with that. By the but. way, I just want to point out what shirt I'm wearing. Hey, oh, as you, sweet. As you make the reference. Yeah. <laughs> wearing my Hal 9000. Um, uh, yeah. So, but it's just, it, uh, again, you know, it's a. It's, it's one of those films where, you know, it almost does require that talking about it afterwards to really pick up on everything, you know, like all, all of the stuff that we brought up here. I didn't necessarily come away with that from the film, you know, so and that's not necessarily, I suppose, any fault of the film, but it's just like, you know, it just yeah, it, it came up just shy of that. Like, oh, yeah, let me put this in like my pantheon of like mm-hmm. my personal favorite films of all time. Right. Which is why I can give this four and three quarter stars and give Dead Alive five stars. Is Dead Alive a better film? <laughs> no, <laughs> but I prefer it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm going to be OK. I have to I have to backtrack and just be honest. For me, the lack of a half star is because there's no tentacle porn in this movie. And that's really what I expect <laughs> out of anime. Um, I was, I was expecting hentai of the fireflies yeah. over here. Hentai of the fireflies. <laughs> That's oh my new band name, by the way. <laughs> well, see, see that? Yeah, that would be more like the Requiem for a Dream version. Yeah. For sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's dual-ended dildos and yeah, like exactly. refrigerators coming to life and shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but I mean, you know, like in terms of other anime, for instance, I would give Princess Mononoke five stars instead because it has maybe it has the element of action and fantasy that i need but there's also i think it's more the mystical side of that movie that adds it adds a power 
like this movie has the power of sadness in the sense that you're like, oh my God, this is powerfully emotional. But I think for me, Princess Mononoke has, it makes a little bit more of a statement. It's an environmental allegory and kind of has, you know, the, the characters take a stand toward that in the end of the film. And so mm-hmm. I think there's something about that that's just, it's uplifting, you know, by comparison to this. So right there <laughs> out of the gate, you're giving me a, a reason to probably rewatch it and enjoy it a little bit more. But I also so, think- And that, that you bring up an interesting point, Craig, because I think that's exactly, so I gave this film an A um, for nice. A-team. Which you're no longer a part of, dickhead. Uh, wow. <laughs> Call back. So, See what happens yeah. when you star rate something and get kicked off the A-team. Yeah. No, you you left the A-team for Team Jason. This we plan see how is it goes. definitely not coming together. We, 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 no, we, we, you know, we, we may not have the, the clever name, but uh, we, we execute much stronger than the A-team over there. We're the, we're the yeah, platinum the J team. team. We're the A-plus team, okay? The J-team. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, to, to your the credit, Craig, team. The K-team. The, yeah, wait, that means we're kidding, though. I don't know about that. <laughs> to your credit, Craig, I was just going to say that this film is a little, um, I gave it an A and not an A plus only because it was a little one note. I think there are films that can take me places like this, but also take me other places as mm-hmm. well, emotionally. Um, and what this did well, it did better than almost anything I've ever seen. Um, but I think that maybe, you know, there are other films that can do that and something else mm-hmm. and add other elements to it. Uh, not that I need a happy ending. In fact, quite the contrary. I love an unhappy ending. Unless we're talking but about just, massage. Hey, right, exactly. Uh, I am from Florida. Again, <laughs> uh, we are the land of the, uh, the happy endings. Why so. is your camera shaking? Go ahead. Uh, right, right. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, the ga- the gator got out of its cage. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't need any more details on that. I just yeah. want to use my imagination. Um, oh no, it got the problem. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a little like Nolan's Bill right? Crosby yeah. right there. pudding Right. Right. So yeah. Actually, that that's some that actually is the that's the exact same reason I would say I gave it an A instead of an A plus yeah. mm-hmm. because like it was it was unlike any other animated film I've seen. But also, yeah, I mean to get that plus. Yeah, you you kind of do want the maybe the, the the fantastical element on top of it, or you want the science fiction a- element on top of it. This was just more like watching a war documentary, sort yeah. of like, but right. with like you know Japanese animated kids. And, and that doesn't like we're all apologizing for not giving it a hundred percent. But let, let's all uh, you know take stock. We were very kind we, to this film. <laughs> we gave it, yeah, yeah. I mean, credit where due. This film's I mean, yeah, badass. It's and absolutely I would one of the best anybody. animated films uh, of all time in terms of, of all time, sure. this sure. type of film. Yeah. Yeah. Like no, no question. I mean, I think right. it, I think it has 100 percent on Rotten Tomatoes because nobody has the balls to actually equivocate in any way over it. Like they're not going to be yeah. well, the pacing or the you know maybe it's a little pro Japan. You know, like there I've seen some reviews online that are not part of Rotten Tomatoes that will go a little deeper. But the Rotten Tomatoes reviews and all the IMDb reviews are a 10, like a tippy top. I have no complaints. What a fucking experience, you know. And and I can completely give it up to this movie to be that for most people, you know. Yeah. We're just picky as fuck. <laughs> a little pretentious. D- discerning is how you, yeah, that's, that's not picky. We're discerning. Right. Yeah. All right, guys. So, yeah, that is our review of Grave of the Fireflies with the fine folks over at the Repeat Viewing Podcast. So, uh, Craig and Seamus, before I go ahead and uh, wrap things up and, and do our plugs and next film and everything, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about your show, where they can find you, uh, websites, all that good stuff. 
All right. Well, you can find us at Repeat View Pod on all the platforms for the podcast. Um, our podcast is very much like this one in that we typically review library films, although lately with all the new releases to streaming platforms, we've kind of jumped on that bandwagon a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, you can find us anywhere you find your podcasts. And I think we've got a pretty good uh, variety of episodes, over 100 episodes now for people to choose from. So please find us wherever you download, listen, and subscribe and do so. And then, of course, recommend us to your friends if you like our show. Uh, and you can find me at Craig Comics on all the platforms. That's K-R-A-I-G-C-O-M-X. What about you, Seamus? Uh, you can find me online, separate of the show, at Seamus Smith Art. That is spelled S-E-A-M-U-S Smith Art. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. And then uh, for the listeners, if you go over there and uh, you find the Army of the Dead episode, you might uh, you might might see Esoterica Cinema there. Uh, again, that was the one we looked at. If you missed that at the top of the show, had a lot of fun, uh, much more joke heavy uh, than this one. You know, obviously this one we got, gave us a chance to be a little bit more somber, which is good because, again, you know, we like to go all over the place and just, you know, speaking to what I was talking about at the end of the show where, you know, cinema is this sort of rich tapestry of emotion and, you know, sometimes you want, you know, the the dick and fart jokes and sometimes you want some, you know, heavy-handed emotion and uh, everything in between. So uh, we definitely try to represent that on our master list of films that we're going to pull from here in just a moment. I uh, do want to remind everybody that we actually do have the website up and running. So you can go to Esoterica Cinema. Dot com and uh, we've we've got the uh, the flippers video. Uh, I don't believe we've actually announced that yet, so you're gonna see that flippers animatic on there. Which uh, guys, so I don't know if you're familiar. We did a sketch in season one called Flippers uh, that was for a, a fake commercial for a strip club that was owned by the sea captain uh, Willem Dafoe's character from the Lighthouse. <laughs> I did not. And uh, that was actually, uh, Ryan was in full performance on that one uh, and basically did the uh, Hark uh, speech. Uh, did the weird it, main accent that they use in that movie? Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. uh, talk, uh, you know, selling, uh, you know, the girls and the buffet and everything. So, um... <laughs> yeah, mermaid. Good old mermaid fucking. Good old mermaid puss. <laughs> mermaid puss. <laughs> yes, if you, if you recognize uh, the uh, several references to mermaid puss over the course of uh, our entire two seasons of Esoterica Cinema, uh, that's what that refers to. Look, so, I get um, it. I mean, I don't think I'm going to let zombie tits die anytime soon, so. <laughs> <laughs> they are but, undead. I mean, they are the tits say, of the undead. Technically, they're already dead, so, you know. Yeah, yeah so, uh, so, yeah, so, and then, uh, so, not content to leave well enough alone, Ryan decided that he was uh, going to have an animatic actually made <laughs> to this sketch. So on the website right there, it's it's a longer, I think it's like, what, two, three minute sketch, this one? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So there's a whole animatic there. It's it's brilliant. It's very funny. Um, listeners, if you haven't seen that yet, go ahead and check that out. We should have that up on a lot of our other platforms as well. Um, just to remind you, again, we are on the Twitter and the Instagram at Esoterica Cinema. I personally am on both as well at Jason Aberrant. That's A-B-E-R-R-A-N-T. And Ryan is at the Ryan Siebold on Twitter. And I think you're, what are you on Instagram? You're not the Ryan Siebold, right? No, I'm I'm Ryan underscore Siebold. Ryan underscore Siebold on Instagram. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, but yeah. I never planned on having a podcast in multiple handles. It was never going to affect me, but uh, now tons of regret. <laughs> Nothing but absolutely. regret. So, um, so guys, I don't know if, uh, if we actually told you this, but like the, about how the way we select our films, I think we might've told you when we guessed it on your show. Um, to where we do just like a random pull at the end of every episode. Uh, again, we have this master list of 200 films available that you, the listeners, can go on and download right now and play along. 
Uh, we are watching, so the way the seasons work, we end up watching, I believe it's 30 films a season, which is 15% of this list. So for next season, we're going to need to replenish that with 30 more films. So for anybody listening, feel free to reach out to us at any of the platforms there. Or also, uh, if you prefer email, you can reach out to us, esotericacinema at gmail.com. The first person to reach out and suggest a film for season three, 100% it goes on the list. No questions asked, whatever it is. Uh, from there, we'll see. So reach out to us. Let us know what you want to see on that list. And then you can excitedly play along and see if we're going to end up pulling it or not. Now, normally, I Jason, like to- Jason, this just in. I just got our first recommendation. It is Anal Juice 6. <laughs> Anal Juice 6. Wait, is that, yeah. the, uh, is that the movie? Maybe the, it's the, the Zoom. Did, the you say, did you say Anal Jew? Because I- Ju- Okay. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Anal wow, Jews yeah. 6 or yeah. Juice Yeah, I got a back. Let's clarify. I'll be editing this out right away. <laughs> <laughs> you better fucking keep that. That's funny. Oh, dude, no. He edits I, out I, everything. I, I, I talk shit about Ron Howard. He edits it out. No, no, no. We're going to have to have I, talk uh, about editing, Ryan. Well, <laughs> I, I will He's say in regards to... for myself. <laughs> lots of space lasers in this one. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. Looks science fiction based. <laughs> well, it's Mel Brooks well, well, recommendation that I was going to give off the top of my head for your next season, just like largely inspired by your t-shirt, Jason, is Shakes the Clown. Ah, so yes, um, the Bill I would throw that in the hopper. Yes, Appreciate that. Yeah. So here's what I here's what I actually want to do for this one. So normally I would do uh, we go to our well, we were using Google and then we went back to our old trusted uh, random dot org true random number generator. I'm going to let you guys do it this time. OK, but instead of having one or two of you go, I'm going to take so. Both of you are going to give me a number between 1 and 200, okay? So, Craig, you go first. Number between 1 and 200. 76. Okay. 101. Okay. So, that's going to give us 177. We're going to divide that bitch by 2. That's going to give us 88.5, which we round up to 89. So, for the purposes of this show, they have just selected... Number 89, which I feel like was super close to one we already did, but it's hard to say. So uh, either way, we're going to go to our master list. Going to come down here to 89. I haven't seen this one in so long, dude, and it's one of my favorite filmmakers. A little one by Joe Dante called Matinee. Oh, man, that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Do you Is that considered, I mean, is that a genre film or where does that... It's kind of all the genres. It's a movie a about movies, so yeah, it's it fits uh, in with way, like the player and the the big picture and stuff more than a goodie from John Goodman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, yeah, I haven't seen that one in forever, possibly since it came out in theater. That was and I, and I love Joe Dante. I'm a huge fan of both Gremlins films. Um, Have just, you uh, I mean, heard his podcast? I love, I love his segment in the Twilight Zone. Have What's you that? heard his podcast? I have not. No. Uh, forget the name of it. It's off the top of my head. Hold on, I can tell you. But it's basically Joe Dante and, and another filmmaker talking to filmmakers so they get literally everybody you can possibly imagine. Oh, wow. You'd think that Joe would be Dante. something that would be on my radar by now. It's, it's oh. called The Movies That Made Me. Oh, I have heard that one. Yeah. That's totally one of those things that's been on my list. That's just see too much damn time making these podcasts for the listeners. I hope you're oh. happy, <laughs> listeners. You're stealing me from Joe Dante podcasts. <laughs> but I'm some, happy to do it. I said some screenwriter. It's actually uh, Josh Olson, who's an Oscar-nominated screenwriter. <laughs> yeah, just that, that guy. No yeah. big deal. That <laughs> no big. Whatever. He thinks he's so special. Yeah. An Oscar nomination. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He should also not be fed after midnight. Yes. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> 
Awesome. So yeah, so uh, I'm actually looking forward to that one. Uh, it's a, that one's a comedy, which uh, I don't think we've done a comedy yet. This, well, Dead Alive kind of, I guess, was a comedy. So, um, but yeah, again, you know, the uh, <laughs> Tucker these, and Dale tried to be a comedy. Yeah, that's what? true. Actually, yeah, that's true. Hold oh, we did not like Tucker, Tucker and Dale, fuck? bro. We did not. Oh, I was yeah. so upset. Wow. Someone's going to have to listen to season could two. Be friends. Oh, no, I was so dis- <laughs> I was like the most disappointed in a movie I've been in so long by that film. Like, You're I crazy. was so ready to enjoy that film. You're nuts. And the wow. crushing disappointment that can't, followed. Can't disagree more. Oh, man. Well, wow. We're going to have to fight about this. We covered that one on our show. Show and we we both love that. Yeah, movie. no, that wow. one uh, that one just dropped a couple a uh, couple episodes actually. Too bad. I've really seen that movie like three or four, four times, dude. I love that movie. It's uh, funny. No, I will never watch that movie again. We'll have to yeah, have you on for a right. bonus episode at some point to discuss why you like that movie. Yeah, uh, you know I, what? I really to, like to tell you. Well, now I'm going to listen to that episode and then I'll debate you off off camera. I'll call you up. Well, in the bonus episodes we're doing too now, these little sort of like variety episode things that we're that we're starting to introduce. Um, We have another one coming up uh, next week, actually. Yeah, because this for for, that'll be our second. Um, So, yeah, so we'll have to maybe introduce some sort of like, you know, fisticuffs feature or (laughs) uh, esoterica cinema versus repeat viewing, you know, like three rounds. Yeah. Yeah. You know, make some sort of feature after that. So we'll definitely be in touch about that because that'd be a lot of fun. And then we'll just edit you out and then we'll be (laughs) all your best points. We'll edit out to make us look far superior. Oh, I assume that was what was going to happen to this episode. (laughs) Awesome. This this episode will be 30 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, guys, this was a ton, a ton of fun. Um, Again, listeners, repeat viewing podcast. Go ahead and check them out. Craig, Seamus, really appreciate having you guys on. Uh, This will definitely not be the last time if we have anything to say about that. Um, and, it's our pleasure. Uh, thank you for having yeah. us. Yeah, thank you for having us. 100%. 100%. So, listeners, make sure to watch the uh, Joe Dante classic. Can we say classic? Either yeah. way, the Joe Dante film matinee with John Goodman. And we will see you next week on Esoterica Cinema. And in the meantime, Ryan, shut the fuck up about Zardoz. <laughs> <laughs> In 1988, Studio Ghibli touched the hearts and minds of people everywhere with its devastatingly haunting debut, Grave of the Fireflies. <laughs> Today, Platinum Dunes is proud, I'm told, to present the reimagining of a beloved classic as we introduce you to the hyper-aggressive world of Michael Bay's Grave of the Fireflies. Grave of the Fireflies! Hello, this is Michael Bay, uh, and I've always really enjoyed uh, Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, just not the sad parts. So I figured, what if we took this Setsuko girl and just made her the ultimate badass? Like Stallone and Schwarzenegger, but with a pretty big purse. But of course, Michael being Michael, No actress could possibly live up to his high standards. Actors, certainly. Actresses, not so much. So he leaned on the one person he always does in such situations. Himself. I mean, these little girls did fine, but they didn't capture the heights of what I was looking for. Uh, I wanted rising cream, but all I got was stale yeast. You know what I'm saying? No one, in fact, knew what he was saying. So I decided the only person who would really be able to catch the essence of Setsuka would be me. The man, Macho, I mean Michael Bay. 
Michael trained for several months to capture the essence of a five-year-old Japanese girl suffering from dysentery. I was on a rigorous regimen of push-ups, sit-ups, and burpees. Uh, and then, to truly understand the dysentery, I would finish every meal with an entire bag of Haribo sugar-free gummy bears. Michael's marriage to his third wife would not survive the training. I think I nailed the performance, but you're gonna have to see for yourself live on Friday night when I bring some cold hard WW2 era pain to those who would oppress my fellow countrymen. So, uh, I suppose be certain to keep your eyes out for, uh, a, yes, really, Grave of the Fireflies as, as reimagined by one Mr. Michael Bay. Yes, Michael Bay. Coming soon, oh yeah! From the visionary minds at Aberrant Literature comes a short fiction collection unlike any other, Aberrant Tales, bursting at the seams with stories of creativity, excitement and wonder. Aberrant Tales takes the very best in modern science fiction, fantasy and horror and weaves them into one thrilling eclectic package. Featuring the works of Ashton McCauley, M.T. Roberts, Daniel Curland and Jason Peters, Aberrant Tales is available today in ebook hardcover and paperback versions, online and everywhere books are sold. Published by Aberrant Literature.